Three, two, one. And we are live. We've out released 121, co hosted by Stephen Knight. And we have got an eclectic mix of guests for you, as usual. We're bringing in someone that I have been checking out his channel in the last week. On the back of the Peter Hyatt statement analyst, McCann stuff that, that we've been doing. A video was suggested to me by YouTube. Body language and behavioral expert Darren Stanton. He's coming in from six to seven. And he was on Jack Mate's show when I watched him. He began his UK TV and media career in 2010 when he was asked to assess the politicians during the TV live debate for the general election. Prior to this, he spent his days investigating and dealing with liars, cheats, and criminals. As a police officer, over the last few years, his skills have been used on behalf of the world's media in high-profile events. Darren has been a regular on our TV screens and radio appearances in some of the nation's biggest shows, like this one show on BBC One and This Morning on ITV. Philip Schofield, boo! Tonight's segment, we'll see Darren discuss the body language of Madeleine McCann's parents, Jerry and Kate McCann. And he will be taking your questions, so it's up to you to steer the Darren Stanton podcast in whatever direction you choose. And what do you think of these um, body language and the uh, word analyst type people? Stephen, do you think there's any? I think there is a lot in people's body language and the way they speak that you could learn some of it that I've seen from other people. It's almost like reading tea leaves. I'm not sold on it as, as a science, uh, but I'd be interested to watch that and, and get some, uh, get some information on this guest and see what, see what he thinks and what he can discern from, you know, the McCann's. Have you read any body language books? I've not. So you don't want you don't know what steepling the fingertips means and going like this means. So there's some tells. I bet you'd be <laughs> shocking to play poker with. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a, a video once and there was my co-host. She's got long hair. And one of her hairs, loose hair, had stuck to my forehead. I'm fidgeting, <laughs> I'm fidgeting throughout the uh, the interview trying to get it off. Like somebody in the comments read my body language and kind of interpreted interpreted that as me being very nervous and not liking the guest I was speaking to. I was like, I was, I'm just trying to get a, a hair off my forehead. So that's my experience of it. How dare you? You should have left it on. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Stephen has a guest at seven. Yeah, my first guest at seven is Les Knight, no relation, uh, who is a volunteer in the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, or VHEMT pronounced vermint for short. Uh, it's a movement we've been assured here, not an organization, uh, and it's advanced by people who care about life on planet Earth. Uh, they're not just a bunch of misanthropes and antisocial Malthusian misfits talking, taking morbid delight whenever a disaster strikes humans. Uh, apparently, the voluntary human extinction is a humanitarian alternative to human disasters. It's going to be a fascinating chat. And then straight on the back of that from 7.30, returning to the show for the second time is the author of the best-selling The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, Mark Shaw. Uh, 
Uh, Shaw uh, is a former noted criminal defense attorney specializing in high-profile murder cases and network TV trial analyst for the Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson and Kobe Bryant cases, as well as being a respected investigative reporter and noted historian. He has published nearly 30 books, including six touching on the JFK assassination. His most recent book, Fighting for Justice, proves for the first time through a primary source, corruption within the Warren Commission, while collateral damage connected for the first time the deaths of Marilyn Monroe, Dorothy Kilgallen and JFK. There's a lot Ooh. going on there. And then uh, it's me again, isn't it? We switch over to locals at this point. Uh, and I'll be speaking to author and radio host at 8 o'clock, uh, Jason Rance. He's released the book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Destruction of Our Cities. That came out earlier this year. Uh, on this segment of the show, Rance will be speaking about how progressivism and woke ideologies have demolished major U.S. cities and how many Americans have no idea how badly their largest cities have deteriorated. Uh, crime, drug addiction, homelessness, woke school indoctrination, so-called inclusive housing policies and outrageous taxes don't stay within the big city limits of places like Los Angeles, Chicago, Portland, New York, Seattle and San Fran. Uh, the effects of ideologically driven left wing policies always spread, which should alarm Americans regardless of their political leanings. Uh, and then from 8.30, uh, I'll be speaking to American anarchist and primitivist author John Zerzan. Uh, he'll join us to speak about his works criticizing agricultural civilization as inherently oppressive and how he advocates um, ways of life of sort of hunter-gatherers uh, as an inspiration for what a free society should look like. Very eclectic mix tonight, Sean. Wow, this is the most a variety I've seen in a long time. 9 to 9.50... CNN senior legal analyst and nationally best-selling author Ellie Honig explores America's two-tier justice system, explaining how the rich, the famous, and the powerful manipulate the legal system to escape justice and get away with vast misdeeds. Indeed they do. In his new book, Untouchable, Honig exposes how the rich and powerful use the system to their own benefits. Revealing how notorious figures like Jeffrey E., Harvey Weinstein, and Bill Cosby successfully eluded justice for decades. Well, look at Savile as well. Mm. He demonstrates how a certain political family dodged a fraud indictment. He makes clear how countless CEOs and titans of Wall Street have been let off the hook, receiving financial penalties without suffering criminal consequences. And it doesn't happen by accident. Indeed, I remember an old um, mafia hitman serving 140 plus years said to me, Sean, in America, you, you get what justice you can afford. <laughs> and it's certainly true. The people who've got the money can play the system and the system preys on the poorest as fodder for warehouses, commodities, human beings reduced to commodities in warehouses. $60,000 a year per person and just drug and gang infested mayhem to keep them all in business. All right. So looks like I heard a little noise there indicating that our first guest is ready to come in. So Stephen, we will see you soon, my friend. Have a good chat. Cheers. Take care.
Right, we're about to bring in Darren Stanton. Hello, Darren. How's it going, my friend? How are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, I was watching on Jack Mate. I went on his show as well. I had a good laugh with him, and I yeah. really enjoyed hey, what you really enjoyed what you had to say. Oh, thank you. Um, I've, I've given a, a lengthy introduction to you earlier on, but can I just ask you if you want to give a bit, little, you know, tell the viewers a little bit about your specialty? Yeah, sure. Um, well, obviously, my background really is sort of psychology. I was a prison psychologist. Started off as a kid loving the show Cracker. Robbie Coltrane, for those that are watching that, are old enough to remember that show. Um, there was a psychologist at Crack Crime helping the police as a psychologist. Um, realised that that really wasn't wasn't reality. Um, so I spent a little bit of time as a prison psychologist. Then I was looking around for something different, and I ended up joining the police. Um, so long story short, did an array of different um, sort of psychological courses because back then the police actually had some money you know, to help me with the CPD stuff. And um, so I really spent a little under twenty years as a response cop, interrogating or interviewing suspects. Um, and as I say in my bio, you know, I spent my career sort of dealing with lives, cheats of criminals on a daily basis. And then um, sort of 2010, I'd been sort of mooching around a little bit in media, doing some talks. Um, and then sort of, you know, quite a few big opportunities came my way. Um, and it sort of snowballed. And then from 2010, I quit the police and have worked sort of in this area ever since. So the McCanns are going to be one of the subjects tonight. So viewers, if you've got questions, wherever you are in the world, put those in the chat and Ash will collate them. But just going back to what you've just said, Darren, so body language, behavioral expert. Now, is that something that you had specific training in or is that just a skill you accumulated over the years by dealing with people who were trying to use uh, you know, body language and saying things to try and deceive you? Yeah, great question. So formally, I'm sort of got a degree in psychology and um, training in forensic psychology, which was obviously what where the prison service came in. And ironically, I don't use any of the skills I learned from forensics in this work. And let me quantify that. So obviously, if you're interviewing people on a daily basis, you they call it a copper's nose, I think. So I think like most people that are watching, we have this good instinct or a lot of us have that ability to kind of spot, spot, you know, cut through the rubbish, cut through the bullshit, quite frankly. Um, so I think my skills really come from a 20-year sort of career of doing this on a daily basis for my job, um, but also from things like NLP, which is, if people are not aware of, that's a communication sort of um, discipline. Um, and that, that there's some certain factors from that enable you to see very subtle changes in emotion because what i do is i'm not really detecting deception or lies what i'm really doing is i'm, I'm good at seeing changes in emotion and then from that sean we think well why is that person verbally saying they're happy but non-verbally you know everything's contradicting what they're saying so that's where you, you kind of the, the deception detection comes in and um, some of it could come from hypnosis, believe it or not, so I'm a hypnotist as well. So you can do conversational hypnosis. Um, and I train doing the Paul Ekman stuff, if people are aware of Paul Ekman, which is the micro-expression um, training. Um, and then, obviously, me, people are going to be probably aware of Peter Hyatt um, with the statement analysis. So what I do really brings sort of NLP, psychology, hypnosis, um, and then things like the statement analysis. So... It's not all about the nonverbal now. It's as people are aware, it's very much what people or the way that people phrase things can give us massive clues in terms of what's happening on the inside.
Yeah, we had Peter Hyatt on last week. Very popular. Oh, I to get him back one. soon. Yeah. So what got you interested in the McCann case, Darren? Well, the thing about it is, certainly from a police point of view, there's been no, again, shop talk, MISPA, you know, um, a high-risk MISPA, high-risk missing person. There's been no um, purse missing person in British history that's had more money put into it, more police time uh, and more PR attention. So, you know, it's probably the biggest missing person case, really, that, you know, that we've ever known. Um, and just really the the whole scenario where things began to play out. And, you know, I watched some of the, the very early interviews um, that they did. And there just something wasn't right, you know. Um, I mean, I know there's lots of things that we're aware of that people can give off false positives. Hence why I'm not a big believer in polygraph. Um, that ends why I turned an opportunity down on a, a very well-known talk show in the UK that used to be on, um, to be on that show. And I, I, I turned it down on the basis that they use polygraph um, because people can under stress demonstrate or, you know, present the same sort of um, signatures as a guilty person. Um, but with with watching the, the early interviews, just just the, ho the whole ball of wax really didn't make sense to me. You know, what they were saying verbally and what they were conveying, none of it was being, uh, none of it was kind of congruent with their non-verbal gestures. Could you give some examples of that then? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of very subtly things like breathing. When there was an interview that I watched, I think it was about seven or eight weeks after the disappearance, and they're being interviewed by a guy from Sky, um, and he asked um, the mum, uh, the mum, you know, are you how do you feel? Are you, are you shocked or something or something on those lines? And uh, but 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 then Jerry McCann sort of took a deep breath, and I've seen somebody equate it to going over a roller coaster. It's almost like here we go again. You know, we're 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 having to go through this all over again. It's almost like we've got to be very careful here. And also, um, there's something that comes from the micro expression training package by Paul Ekman, and um, as we know, there's 43 sort of muscle muscles in the face. The, there's kind of there's a muscle here that's engaged, which is sort of grief, um, and we can't do that. On, you know, we can't do that consciously. So that coupled with a thing called shame gesture, where um, the mother Kate McCann just basically answered the question, but then she immediately looked down and sort of tilted. So gesturally, you know, that's denoting shame. And some of the ways, some of the pronouns that she used were were in, were in past tense. So there was a number of sort of three or four red flags that, that kind of presented straight away, whereas an innocent person or a person that has no knowledge of anything, it would be a lot more kind of um, eloquent. There'll be a lot more free flowing. There wouldn't be any hesitancies. There wouldn't really be, even though, even though emotions you know, are, are riding high. It was just a bit too cool and calm and collected for my liking, really. So when you say using the past tense then, are you referring to them talking about Maddie in the past tense as if she were already deceased so that they weren't putting out the vocabulary that would indicate that they were still eagerly searching for her. Yeah, so the, yeah, there's certain things that people that, you know, that are, are genuinely seeking help, you know, asking the public. That's why, as we know, the, the cops now quite readily, but more so in this country now, will you know, ask if they suspect a family member, they'll put them in front of a press conference and they'll get somebody like myself to, to sit there and, and say, what do you think? 
Um, but but I think essentially for me, so what was the question again, Sean? I think I lost my thread then. So I was asking you, you referred to them using the past tense. Yeah, sorry, yes. Yeah. So there's a, there's a bit in Kate's book where, you know, she says her privates, it's from his last statement, her privates were, were near perfect or something. There's a few other pronouns, a few other gestures where it, it speaks about her being the past tense, whereas any parent would, even if they're sceptical that, you know, all these years have gone by, they, they probably would still live in hope. You know, I mean, the, the, the missing person cases that I dealt with, you know, people just, I mean, this this thousands and thousands of people go missing every day, but, no, you know, no case ever attracted this amount of attention. Um, so, I, again, I just, it just kind of just stacked up to me. That was the best way of describing it, sort of what we call kinesthetically, you know, my gut instinct um, just, it just didn't sit right with me. So Hillary is asking whether you've looked at the body language or statements of the McCann's friends who attempted to back up their story? Yeah, I mean, personally, I've not seen um, anything that contradicts. I think they're just being quite genuine in that um, they're, they're back, you know, they're sort of supporting their friends. I know there's a lot of inconsistencies in terms of their account of where the villa was, and they said they have they had line of sight and all these different things. Um, but this is, if you think about this, I mean, I, I worked on the Huntley case. I'm not going off, off track here, but to, to sit there and, and talk to journalists and face the cameras, knowing that you've allegedly, you know, done done this thing, it's it takes a lot. And um, to, to manage all those different sort of autonomic mechanisms within the brain, it's like juggling, trying to juggle 10 balls. So I think we do get to this stage, you know, we, we should be obviously aware of called cognitive overload, that people just find it incredibly difficult. Uh, but going back to your question, um, I've not seen anything specifically within sort of friends and stuff that, would lead me to believe that they've, you know, been let into a secret um, or anything like that. Um, I think they're probably acting with a good heart. So I've got a more broader question from Indie Girl. Why hasn't Madeline been declared dead so we can stop funding this circus? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Because generally it's about six years. I think it's six years legal, seven years uh, for someone to be um, legally declared dead. So that is a very good question. I don't have an answer for you. But, but I agree with you. It's, I think it's time now to draw a line, um, you know, and then, yeah. So I agree with you on that. Great question. So when you're doing your analysis then, how do you incorporate the variations of expressions of shock? Um, so essentially, it's also linked to surprise. So what we say is that if you ask somebody a question, if they're trying to feign shock or surprise, if it lasts longer than generally a second or two, then they're actually contriving that emotion. They're trying to convey that emotion. Whereas, you know, true shock or true surprise, it's almost like someone throwing something at your shoulder and you, you automatically flinch. Um, it's that instantaneous. So generally, you know, if someone, if um, you tell someone some, say, say, gossip at work, if they really labour the expression of shock or surprise, um, generally they knew about it. So there's been a few instances, again, where the, the 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 expressions of emotion from the pair of them has just been too drawn out. It's just been, you know, they've kind of over-egged the pudding, if that makes sense, on some certain interviews. See if we can get you to comment on this comment. The 38 questions Kate refused to answer, they said there is no proof she was harmed. Well, what's not harmful about kidnap? They know what happened. So 
do you think then from the body language they know more than they're letting on? Yeah, there's something called linguistic deflection. So, for example, if you if you say to me, "Did you do this, uh, Darren? Did you did you really steal that? Be honest." Um, if I if I basically sidestep it or object that or kind of sidestep the question later on, um, I can I can sort of say, "Well, I never lied to you, Sean." You know, by refusing to answer that question, it's almost like they can come back and say, well, "I never lied to you." So it's lying by omission almost. Um, so I think yes, that's 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 what that's all about. We call it a linguistic deflection that people will try and change the subject or they'll try and sidestep it and say, I mean, I know one of the interviews I looked at recently, um, they, were, they were being asked questions in the early few weeks of her being missing. And Kate says, well, we can't discuss that. Now, was that the police saying don't disclose that information because we've still got live lines of inquiry? Or was that her being, you know, sort of um, manipulative, really, in saying or inferring that she can't discuss that because the police have told her to? We, we, we weren't ever told. So I'm with Darren Stanton, wherever you are watching this, if you've got a question for Darren, we're presently on the McCann case and we're talking more specifically about the body language and behavior um, of the McCann's parents. If you've got a question in that area, please put them in the chat. Now, the careers. You've got people working in the medical profession high up, uh, I think there's something called a Messiah complex um, where these people are esteemed and, you know, are obviously experts in the profession, but that kind of body language extends out to the general conversations. So how do you incorporate that as well into this picture? Again, another question. I mean, essentially, um, people often think, for example, I assess a lot of politicians for the media and things like that. And people often assume that because they're in these high positions um, that they've been heavily coached or, you know, they, they're, they're fantastic at lying. Well, the reality is that, you know, we've all got the same autonomic nervous system, even though someone's probably very well trained, a politician, a doctor, um, they're still going to be on a, um, they're not going to be able to, to control every aspect of things like blink rates, pupil dilation, you know, skin tone color. Um, so, so they're still going to leak out the same sort of gestures. Now, they may be able to, you know, maybe suppress a couple of them. It's almost like juggling two balls. But when they're under a lot of pressure and we've got this detection apprehension coming in, because being under the scrutiny of, of media as they were um, initially, you know, um, that's a lot of pressure. So we call that detection apprehension. So the focus is going to be very much on what they're saying verbally, not so much non-verbally. But because their focus is being, you know, they've been very careful what they say and don't say, and um, we do get this leakage coming out. Hence, why it's been spotted by by people like, like Peter Hyatt and myself and others. So, Darren, in your career, have you come across people who are impervious to leakage, professional deceivers? Yeah, of course. There's going to be, you know, when we talk about psychopaths, not every psychopath is a Michael Myers. A psychopath can be, you know, lots of people in business that would score as a psychopath on a a psychometric test and principally it's about having this lack of developed emotion if somebody wants a particular thing they will you know they're not they're not caring about you they won't um show empathy they'll just go for what they want um so i think there's probably a large degree of that as well so people with psychiatric disorders or personality disorders sociopathy psychopathy and then the other thing is if someone truly believes something so almost like being a method actor if you truly embrace and believe 
and what you're telling the police or what you're telling the media, the brain will always um, remain consistent with its belief system. So if you convince yourself of something, then the brain will produce the outward leakage consistent with that belief. So, yeah, there are people out there that are, I mean, and that's why, you know, people get scammed all the time and, and things happen because some people are just very plausible. So if memory is malleable, what does that say about eyewitness testimony? If those people can get on the stand and believe what they're saying, even though they've rewritten the facts in their own minds? Yeah. I mean, this is why the police, certainly in this country, brought in a thing called cognitive interview where um, they would get a first account from a witness and, and then they'd say, right, imagine you're the CCTV camera. Imagine you're going to what we call second position. And even at tra training school, when was trained as a cop, you know, they'd set up a scenario with actors and then you'd have maybe 15 guys in the class. We'd all write a, a witness statement, what we saw, and every single statement varied in some, some way. Some people said that, you know, the mugger had a red jacket, some said green. So, you know, witnesses are not impervious, really. Um, I think very often in court, it's it's just, dare I say, it's a little bit like theatre. It's, it's who can draw out the information relevant to that particular defence or prosecution, if that makes sense. It certainly does. I've, I've seen that firsthand. So Jenny wants to know what you think of Operation Grange. I'm going to be honest, I don't know anything about it. Okay. Um, during your analysis, have you ever seen a change in the pupil of the eye? Yeah, yeah, lots of times. So that's one of the key things that we look for. Um, eye contact, pupil dilation and blink rate are three great ways to spot if there's been a sudden change in emotion straight away. So certainly pupil dilation, and that's going to denote a sudden rapid change in, in emotion. Um, blink rate um, is generally going to double or triple. Um, and also, we all know that, you know, people think liars can't look you in the eye. Um, well, generally, three to five seconds of eye constant eye contact without blinking or looking away. And what I say when I do public speaking, for example, I say, if somebody is trying to convince you of something and they, they sort of look you in the eye for longer than five seconds, they're going to kill you or kiss you. So let me quantify that. Yeah. Um, generally, fixed eye, eye, eye contact is, is reserved for romantic partners, for family, for close friends. Um, and also on the flip side, when I was a police officer waiting for the pubs to, to sort of kick out on a Saturday night in the van, the first thing that we'd see is you'd have, although women used to fight as well, generally the guys would come out and the first level of aggression would be what are you looking at and then it would escalate. So eye contact is very, very important. So if you've got somebody that's trying to kind of convince you of something, you know, if they're prolonging eye contact more than sort of five or six seconds, you know, let that be a, a red flag to you. So did you notice any particular, particular incidences of accelerated blink rate or pupil dilation with the McCanns? Yes. Yeah, I did, actually. And also with Jerry McCann, his, one of his things that he can't control is duping delight. Um, he was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman. And for those that are not in the UK, Jeremy Paxman is, well, not so much now, but he was a very sort of hard-hitting, you know, investigative journalist, presenter. And, and he was saying, do you not think you courted the media in the early days? Do you not think it was a bit of a carnival? And, and rather than defending it and, and saying, well, this is my daughter, you know, this is, what do you want me to do? Um, he just basically had a massive grin on his face. So, you know, that is completely incongruent with someone that's, that's trying to find his daughter. You know, so that's, that's another one that Jeremy can, you know, 
I've not seen him recently been interviewed, but certainly in the early days, he would just start smiling for no apparent reason. Um, and that brings me to there was a, is it Susan Smith in America where she alleged that she was carjacked. And then they were doing this press conference to the media. Her husband was innocent, knew nothing about it. He was making pleas to the media to help them find the killers. And it transpired that she'd shot the kids and killed them and let the handbrake off on the car and let it roll into the river. And she was um, interviewed and she was telling the journalist, the worst thing about what happened was, you know, seeing the blood coming out, coming out my child's head. Um, but then she just, if you on YouTube, you'll see it. And uh, she just grins for no reason. I, I actually use that on one of my lectures. And you're thinking, wow, that's chilling. That's really chilling. You know, you're talking about the death of your children one week after they were murdered. And now you're suddenly smiling. Is it possible that Jerry McCann's grinning could have been part of a shock reaction? Potentially. But then when you look at that in relation to other gestures as well. So what I always say is, this is why I'm not a big believer in, in polygraph. Because as we know, polygraph is, you know, galvanic skin response. So we sweat, our pulse goes up, our heart races. Um, and we know, you know, that that um, people can give these false positives. So with the things that I do, I'm looking for maybe seven or eight different red flags to create what we call a behavioral cluster. So we wouldn't just suddenly accuse somebody of deception, you know, if they suddenly shifted their eye position or began to blink. Um, we're looking at seven or eight inconsistencies within a very short space of time on a particular topic. Um, so in my opinion, you know, this stuff is more accurate than polygraph. It takes into account false positives. So you're saying that when you notice these things with the McCanns, seven or eight other things were kicking in as well? Yeah, so we're looking at blink rate, pupil dilation. Um, the, the, the good way to look at people's lips. Yeah, so if, because of the fight or flight syndrome, generally people's lower lip will go very, very pale. Um, I worked on... Um, in, in England, the select committee with the um, phone hacking scandal with the uh, Murdochs about 10 years ago. And they were being interviewed by ministers and James Murdoch, the son. Um, it was so blatant. You didn't have to be an expert to spot it, Sean, but his right cheek would flush every time he told a lie. It was like Pinocchio. <laughs> so um, sometimes it can be that easy. So you're saying then that the lips drain of blood, does that, does that thick cause the lips to thin? Yeah, well, essentially, it's the fight or flight. So it goes back to sort of primeval days. So if you're in a position where you're being, you know, going to be attacked, the, obviously the body will pull blood away from the body into the hands for you to fight, um, and likewise to the legs to run. So when people feel threatened, so if you suddenly begin to talk about a topic that they're not comfortable talking about, um, then what will tend to happen is you'll see um, the lower lip and also earlobes as well. Um, but more so the lower lip, if that suddenly goes very pale, it means there's been a dramatic shift in emotion internally. And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, you know, you're trying to come over cool and calm, but I've just asked you, did you steal that property or did you burgle that house? Or, you know, were you involved in this disappearance? Um, why would an innocent person, um, you know, an innocent person might have that gesture, but that alone, they wouldn't have six or seven other things firing off. So, yeah, always look for the lower lip on people. And this is cross-cultural as well. None of this stuff is cultural. You know, we work with anybody anywhere in the world. So always look for the lips going very pale all of a sudden. So would someone who was telling lies and the lip was doing what you just described, would there be a rise in the heart rate as well? Yeah, a good way to look at breathing is, is shoulders. You know, has there been a shift in the way that, 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 you know, the sort of rate of the shoulders moving. That's a good way to, especially if they've got like a heavy coat on. 
Um, that's that's always kind of quite a good way. And we're probably aware of, you know, the bilateral shoulder shrug. It could be quite um, essential. When when somebody says, you know, what do you think about that? You don't care. You go, I don't, I'm, I don't care. You know, I'm indifferent. But when people are trying to create the impression they're indifferent, it's almost like a half gesture of this shoulder shrug. And we saw that with Ian Huntley, the child killer, being interviewed. It's very, very subtle, but you can see it if you're looking for it. It's trying to create this somewhat, well, I'm not really bothered or I'm, not, I'm indifferent, but they really are. So you're saying there's a correlation between movements of the shoulders and heart rate? Um, I'm saying that the person's perception of detection apprehension triggers um, this, this cognitive overload. Um, and then, therefore, all these things then come into play because your nervous systems are obviously autonomic. Um, a lot of these things will just happen automatically at once or as, as they go along. So the best way to test it is if you suddenly change the subject um, onto something else and, and those gestures decrease, then you know that that's the hot spot. That's the hot button, um, you know, where, you know, for, for that, 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 that sort of behavior. So if you're interrogating someone then, and these body language cues start to kick in, do you then intensify your questioning in that area? Is that the plan? Well, the thing about England is, the UK, for example, is the interviewing process has been the same for many, many years. They tend not to embrace a lot of this stuff. So, for example, I once asked somebody a question, a prolific burglar, and you always generally know the answer. You've already got your evidence at the side of you. Um, but I left about 20 seconds worth of silence and the solicitor kicked up, kicked in and said, officer, you're being oppressive. So the police, have, and certainly in the UK, have got their hands tied to a large extent. I know it's other parts of the world, sort of America and things like that. Um, and there are a lot of, my belief is a lot of the interrogations aren't recorded, whereas obviously the UK, everything's recorded. Um, and even the slightest deviation from, from the, the main, you know, the main sort of peace model. Um, they call it it's oppressive. So you've got a very narrow road that you've you've got to work with. So is silence a strategy in interrogations? Absolutely, because you know it's like in sales. They say the first one to break the silence loses. You know, be it the customer or the salesman, and that's true because innocent people don't feel the need to fill the silence. Oh wow! All right, so we got a question from Blank Faces. <laughs> that's pertinent. What did you think of Jerry's reaction to the cadaver dogs? Yeah, great question again. I mean, again, we're seeing, um, if you zoom in on, on, on the things, you get an increase in blink rate, you get a shift in eye accessing cues. So, you know, I know people criticise that, but it is a good, it is a good way to um, see a shift in emotion. I know a lot of people say, if you, I don't believe that when people are remembering things all the time, you know, some people might look in a certain direction um, and be, be sort of being truthful. So with him, he does shift his position at certain times when he's being asked about those about those cadaver dogs. So there are a number of tells, blink rates. If you again, if you zoom in, there is a change in lip and the blood blood flow there. Um, and also I think with anchor points. So if someone's sat in a particular posture, um, yeah, people, if they've been sitting for a while, will naturally want to move their change their posture a little bit. But if somebody suddenly does it, um, they've had been consistent all the way through the interview and then suddenly change in relation to that particular question. I remember Huntley. Uh, I watched Huntley's interview um, when I was interviewed by Cambridgeshire Police. And at one point, the in, in custody, there's just one point when he cannot take it anymore. And he just literally bowed his head, 
and it's almost like switching off a, a robot. He just cannot continue because he's physically exhausted. Um, because it's, it's fatiguing to keep up that pretense under that amount of pressure. It's not an easy thing. So you're saying a big shift in the seated position. Yeah, so so if people are sat in a certain posture, certain positions, I'm just sort of sat like this. And then I begin, then if you if you increase your, you know, sort of um, questioning into me, um, one of the things that's going to happen is, again, my posture is going to shift. I'm going to begin to make what we call pacifying gestures, which are self-reassurance gestures. So any sort of hand-to-mouth gesture, um, you know, King Charles used to do this where he took his hand in his jacket or play with his cufflings. And these are times when he's not feeling confident. And likewise, when people are feeling uneasy, you know, whereas they felt quite comfortable me sitting like this, if I begin to feel under pressure, I'm going to have an unconscious sort of need to sort of self-reassure myself a little bit. So any sort of anti or pretending I've got something in my eye or brushing something off, um, or generally, um, you know, I will, I will sort of change hand positions. So I might move my hands in a, in a certain different place. So that, but that will that will be in that will be consistent with the question. So we're almost like taking a a timeline. So in a police interview, for example, there's generally two of you. One will be asking the questions, and one will be what we call the sweeper officer. They'll be writing things down because as, as the investigating officer, you can't be sitting there writing it all down. You're you know you you have to build rapport with the suspect, um, and then when you look back on the timeline, you can then say right, okay, um, breaking this timeline down, let's go in reverse. And you know, generally, a person that's that's got nothing to do with the offence will be able to give you an accounting for in different orders, um, whereas a guilty person won't. So there's lots of different tricks, almost tradecraft, I guess, that you do when interviewing somebody. Question from Jean: What do you reckon Clement Freud's part was in this situation? Um, again, I'm, I can't really comment on that because I've not uh, I'm not sort of researched that aspect of it with him. Question from GB: Do you think the McCanns will ever get prosecuted for anything? A child neglect? No, not for child neglect. I think there's a large degree of not so much nepotism, but I've always said if they were, you know, Mr. and Mrs. McCann, who you know he, he was a mechanic, she worked in the local shop. I think it would have been a different sort of situation. I do think there's a, a lot of nepotism involved in this because of their position in society. I think that's had a, a great um, bearing on the amount of um, attention that the case case got. So Rainbow is saying that Jerry squirms out of his seat when asked certain questions. Have you noticed that? Yeah, again, this this is to do with what I've been saying about posture. Um, I mean, although he's you know clearly a very intelligent man, he's a surgeon, isn't he? Um, he tries to remain very stoic and very still. But again, this just comes down to this detection apprehension. You know, it's almost like you're getting too close now. I need to create distance. And we see that in verbal context when, you know, for Clinton, for example, said, you know, didn't have relations with that woman. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was innocent, it did name, say, Mr. Lewinsky or Monica. And likewise, um, people try to create not just a um, nonverbal distance, you know, by moving maybe away or crossing their arms. And they will try to create a verbal distance by saying, you know, I, I, no, I didn't know that woman or that, that thing. They'll use those sort of terms like that rather than naming them. And it's try, it's, it's just literally trying to create a distance between them and the situation in the investigator's mind. Indie Girl is wondering, why were the UK police ever involved? 
Well, I think they, they complain that much that the Portuguese police weren't being effective. I mean, they effectively ruined the, the um, investigating officer in Portugal's career, didn't they, uh, by trying to allege misconduct. I think it was a um, an attempt to muddy the waters, if I'm honest, because obviously we have the, the blood that was found in the vehicle. We have the cadaver dogs. You know, I know <clears throat> there's inconsistencies in their account of where the villa was geographically in relation to where they were. Um, and then there's also some suggestion in terms of the timeline um, I've heard, you know, sort of assertions. I think, was it Peter Hyde that mentioned it? There's like a three-day window. So I think he, he mentioned something like this, the offence, alleged offence happened here, but then, you know, they secreted her, allegedly. Um, and then three days later, that's when they've got the high car and moved her. So there's a lot of holes in the story, really. So, Darren, there's a lot of different theories about what happened. There's a lot of people who support the McCanns. And I've, I've spoke to police, ex-police who support the McCanns. Do you get blowback because of your position on this? It's the most prevalent or most popular question I get asked by journalists. Because I obviously I write for the press as well, and I work on sort of the you know obviously not crime wise, but I work on a lot of TV shows in the UK. And when I'm interviewed on radio and sort of telly, um, that's the main question. But obviously, I have to be quite quite careful. Um, I give my opinion, but again, I have to be sort of careful what you say. So Nicole is wondering whether you think it's crazy that they'd leave a child, never mind three, alone. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't have done that. I mean, that's that's what most people say. You know, why would you leave your child? Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. Why would you do that? I've got a two-month-old baby here. I mean, my partner just absolutely won't, won't let him out of our sight. We're just, you know, you're hyper vigilant, aren't you, when you've got yeah. a, a new a newborn? I didn't. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, why would you? I don't know anybody. You know, I know lots of people have done lots of different socioeconomic backgrounds and occupations, and I don't. I've not met a single one that that thought it was appropriate to do that. Yeah, um, we're getting asked. I don't know if this is outside your remit, but we're getting asked about the theory of. Uh, Madeline getting drugged and perhaps there was a accidental too much given and a death. I've heard the I've heard I've heard the assertion that yeah apparently she was quite boisterous at times and they potentially give her something to calm her down and obviously there's been some sort of ab reaction or some sort of contraindication to that that medication and that, and that's another theory that I've heard. Yeah I'm I can't really comment on it because you know we just don't know but I have heard that I have heard that that sort of um scenario put forward. So you've been asked by BR about your perspective on the Portuguese police because in the beginning they had them a guido, but more recently haven't they issued an apology? So what, what do you think about the complete uh, change in attitude? I'm a bit dismayed, actually, because I think looking at that detective that initially was investigating, he truly believed. I mean, he said it outright, didn't he? Um, and he was, he was, I think he was a pretty decent guy. I think he, he really... Did his best, and I think he, you know, he just didn't get the necessary evidence. Um, you know, if if if, if it, it did happen the way we think it did, um, I've got no no idea why they've apologised. To be honest, because I don't believe they've got any reason to apologise. You know, they've gone out there and investigated the best of their ability, and then they've had obviously officers from the UK sort of stomping in, and and quite rightly, you know, it's not really not really in our jurisdiction. Um, so with. So we're talking to Darren Stanton about the McCanns right now. He is a body language and behavioural expert. If you've got any questions, please put them in the chat. And Sego is saying, this is not necessarily related to this case, just my curiosity. Do these affectations and tells change 
when there's a deliberate agenda, e.g. when people know they're being filmed? Yeah, I think so. I think, well, they say, like, when they do observational documentaries and things like that, people, you cannot not affect the environment, can you? Um, I think certainly in this context, though, even though they're being filmed, um, I mean, I did hear something, I'm not sure, I've got no evidence to support this, but I heard a, um, a thing where they were being interviewed by a camera crew. Um, and again, I've got no evidence to support if this is true or not. There were a fixed camera, there was a second position reverse camera, so two cameras, then a third camera doing a wide shot. And I heard that um, she wanted a break because she got upset. And when the shot had cut, she began to start laughing. I did not realise the third wide shot camera was still rolling. I don't know how true that is, but that's something else that I've heard as well. Um, so Craig is wondering when the PJ formally interviewed Kate McCann, did they make the mistake of letting Jerry McCann sit on the, in on the interview? Was it a mistake? Yeah, I think I think it was bizarre. I, I don't know why that was allowed to happen. Um, definitely. So you put particular emphasis on hand movements earlier, Darren. Were there any notable hand movements you noticed in the cans when they were giving statements? They're quite they, certainly Jerry's quite stoic. He does a gesture called a reverse steeple, um, and this is almost like what, what, what you know. My opinion, what professionals would do. Um, we notice President Trump does a, what's called a reverse steeple, um, which is more to do with you know I'm the more most important person in the world. So that's yeah. a normal steeple, is it? Up, upwards, yeah. and the reverse is down. Yeah. So, so we, I've seen him do the reverse steeple. Some, so it's almost, you know, like it's a, it's almost like a power power struggle. Really, it's almost like I'm getting one over on you. It's duping delight in a way. So, so normally you might say, yeah, okay, blah blah blah. But then the reverse steeple. If you watch Trump, Trump footage, for example, does that a lot. Um, so it just means that he. Is calling the shots like he is the most important person or the most most more to do with power, more to do with the assertion of power and control. Uh, and we see that gesture in quite a few interviews. So the, the upward one is power and control or the downward one? Well, this was it's still a power gesture. Um, but it's something that I say a lot of people that not arrogant, but somebody that's very confident. So we tend to see it with with maybe lawyers or doctors will sort of do this gesture. Um, but then this is just really a more extreme version of that of that gesture. So this is more the person's more interested in sort of power and control, really. And it comes from um, you're almost pointing to your genitals. That's basically where the theory comes from, you know, uh, that you're the big man sort of thing. It sounds a bit bizarre, I know, but that's 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 where they reckon the origins of it come from. But but yeah, anyone that's doing this, but in, in the reverse, um, you know, for them. Um, the topic's very much about power and control and the assertion of power. So I'm going to have to look out for that. So when people are doing the downward one, for example, is that something that just occurs naturally with people or is it something that they're trained to do by body language experts so that they can project power and confidence? There's certain gestures that that um, they're taught to do. So, for example, I mean, I worked a lot on Trump. I was gutted when he got voted out, Sean, to be honest, because I used to get a lot of work for Trump. And um, you know, be interesting to see what happens next year. Um, not specifically that gesture, but for example, if if the media are taking a photo, um, people that are in the know, like Trump was, for example, and Putin, you'll always see them on the left hand side. So right, so as you're looking at the television, 
they'll always be right off shot because there's something the way that the camera captures the the, the, the photograph that allows them to see it seem more powerful. And there's a great bit of um, the footage. If people Google when um, President Trump met the Japanese um, prime minister that was, I think he was assassinated last year, um, he literally pulls him towards him. Um, he pulls him sort of off balance. Um, and you'll see uh, President Trump pull a fantastic contempt micro expression. So he'll, he'll go. And then he's got a fake smile. So we all know that one of the most faked emotions is a smile because we tend to smile when we're worried, we're anxious. So if you said to me, oh, how's it going, Darren? And I say, oh, I'm all right, thanks, Sean. Now, if I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders, I'm probably, you know, I'm not going to get into it with you right now. Yeah, so I'm just going to, yeah, I'm fine, thank you. But my my smile won't be genuine because um, the crow's feet here won't be engaged um, and my eyes won't be engaged. So you'll generally see a fake smile. So if people look at that footage on YouTube, you'll see him pull contempt. He'll then pull a fake smile. He pulls his jacket towards him, which is another power gesture. He yanks the Japanese guy towards him. And then he goes like that. So if someone did that to you, like, good boy, good boy. Who was you told? And then as they disengage, the Prime Minister goes like this with his hand because he's crushed his hand. So if, so if the viewers want to look at that, it's, it's really interesting. Hmm. GB's got a question. Do you think the McCanns have been treated differently because they are doctors? That's a great question, GB. And yes, I do think that. Um, I do think they've been treated differently. I alluded to it earlier. Um, certainly in, in the UK, I think, you know, people in certain professions, people tend to, it's like if you go to a networking event or something, you know, I've, I've done this just for, just for, um, just for a bit of a social experiment. You know, I've been places where people don't know me. If you say, oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm a, like in England, we call it a dustman. But if you say, I'll oh, take out the trash, I'm like on the, on the trash truck, you know, oh, but if you say you're a doctor or you're a, you know, a judge, people ascribe a different level of respect to you based on your identity. It's on your profession. It shouldn't be that way, but, but people do tend to, you know, look at your profession and they'll, they'll sort of ascribe you more respect or not. Um, so I do think that them being doctors, has played a massive part in the way that um, this investigation has been handled. So are you saying that these people who are taught to in a certain way because they have esteemed professions, would there be like a feedback loop whereby those people then, because they're being treated that way, their body language would change over the years to accept that they are esteemed professions, professionals? Yeah, I mean, that, that's possible. But I think, I mean, I've not seen any recent interviews with the McCanns, but all the way through, certainly the early parts of the interview, I think if anyone wants to go and investigate the McCanns that, that hasn't done so already, the, 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 really, the, the, the gems, the gold really is in the first few months of the investigation because that's when the thing was fresh, was raw, and that's when they were their most vulnerable in terms of being spoken to by the media. I mean, now, um, they probably wouldn't give off the same sort of gestures because they've had over a decade to settle into that. Um, but if, you know, certainly the first sort of two months worth or three months worth of interviews, um, you know, there's lots of tells and gestures coming out because, you know, even back then, what we do, what I do wasn't that prevalent in, you know, in, in sort of crime investigation back then. And we can look at things historically. You know, I get, I very often get asked to look at, I was, I mean, I was recently asked to look at the engagement video of Princess Diana, you know, and we can see lots of things coming out that we weren't aware of back then. So we can look at historical footage 
um, and, and sort of, you know, make assertions that we weren't able to do back then. What were the main things Diana was leaking? She didn't want to be there. I mean, Charles didn't want to be there either. I mean, there's a famous comment where um, the journalist says, are you very, are you in love? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. Whatever that means, whatever love means. Well, then Diana goes, like, just to say, what are you, what are you saying? You know, so she, she was just like a complete fish out of water, really. Um, but there was no way that he wanted, he didn't really want to get married. I think it was all about having producing an heir for the throne. Yeah, I'll never forget that quote when he says whatever love yeah, means. Whatever means. Oh, thanks. You know, you're really selling it to me, aren't you? <laughs> so Seagull's got a question that ties in with what you just said. You you just said, that, you know, in the beginning they were vulnerable and it was raw, but they became more seasoned. And Seagull is saying if you are well-practiced in deception, then does that mean that you will not be detected during interviews? There's, again, I keep saying this phrase, but it is a great question. You've got some great questions coming in tonight. Yes, it does. So, for example, if if you knew that you were going to be going into a situation, say, in a week's time, so what the police tend to do in the UK now for a lot of offences, not murder, obviously, but the lower offences, there's something called a necessity test. So in the old days, when you would just get arrested for everything, um, if we know who you are, okay, because obviously custody gets very gets very busy, um, we do what's called a voluntary interview. So if I said to you, Sean, right, I need to come in next week and I'm going to be asking you about what happened, you've got a whole week to prep that. Whereas if you're arrested right there and then, you know, and that's where the, the British, what we call a caution. So, if, for example, in the US, you know, like the Miranda rights, you know, you, you have the right to remain silent. Well, in the UK, the, the caution, we call that, that's, that's what we say the rights of the suspect are. It changed um, about 20 years ago because it used to be, you don't have to say anything, but anything you do say may be using evidence. Whereas now, it's you don't have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you fail to mention when questioned something which you later on in court. Because what was happening was people were having time to think about it. So if I arrested you tonight, Sean, or, or somebody, um, and you you go, no comment, I'm not speaking to you. But then by the time you get to court, you've had time to think of a plausible answer or somebody's given you an answer. The judges now can say, no, we're not accepting that account because you have the opportunity to speak on interview or on, inter on interrogation, hence why it says when questioned, you know, something you later on in court because people were coming up with. So going back to the original question, yes, if someone's prepped and they know pretty much what they're going to be asked, there's a thing called visual motor rehearsal. And a lot of athletes have actually used this, believe it or not. There was a famous experiment um, with David Beckham when he was, you know, really young in, in, in his career. And they wired him up to an EEG machine and they, they, they kind of monitored him um, training, you know, uh, passing the ball and whatnot, measured his brainwaves. And then they kind of relaxed him, almost put him into a trance. And they had him mentally go through the same process in his mind. And what was interesting was the EEG brainwaves were almost identical so the brain can't differentiate between things that are real or imagined. The, the same neurons fire. So by the same token, if you're rehearsing um, a version of you in an interview room being asked questions, if you kind of tell your mind, I want to remain calm, I want to seem plausible, you know, I want this, I want that. If you do that time and time again for a solid week, when you come to do it for real, the brain will go, oh, yeah, I've already done this 100 times already. I know what you want. So that's a long way of explaining um, how that works. 
Wow, this is fascinating. So in America, the protocol is if the cops come and, you know, try and arrest you or ask you questions or that, you plead the fifth, you call your lawyer and your lawyer, you know, will say, keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Any any inquiries, it comes to me. So are you saying that if you do that in the UK, that is now an aggravating factor in terms of the court and the judge to no. keep your mouth shut? Well, you know, well, the thing about the thing is, the thing about it is the police, you don't have to say anything as a suspect. So it's the same principle applies. You know, we say you don't have to say anything. Okay. So, um, so you can sit there, even if you're completely innocent, and you can sit there. I, I've had innocent people that sit there and said no comment. So it's for me as a cop, okay, to get the points to prove for that offence in interview. So if they go no comment, um, police officers tend not to like that because they've still got to go through the whole list of questions. So, you know, I've sat there sometimes for two hours on interview and they've said no comment. Um, and it's frustrating. Um so, so it, it's not going to. So, so literally, it won't harm the prosecutor. It won't harm you as a as a suspect because you do have the right to remain silent. You know, you don't have to say anything. Um, it just means that if you suddenly then come up with a, some miraculous reason why you were in that particular place at that particular time, um, and they would the judge or the magistrates, as we have in the UK, they would just say, "Well, why not just why not just say that at the time then." Um, so then they can draw an inference um, on why you initially said no comment and then you're now happy to give an account. They can draw an inference on your, um, you know, unwillingness to cooperate. Um, but, but yeah, on paper, you do not have to speak to the cops. Question from Gene. The German suspect, do you think he was, he's being a scapegoat? Yeah, I think all these these strange sightings that have come up, I just think they're just the smoke and mirrors. I'm not saying there's somebody orchestrated it, but I just think, yeah, I've, I've never held, I've, not, I've never thought they've held water, really, all these different suspects and photo fits that have been, been sketched out. I've never really thought anything of it, really. Fred is wondering whether there was any intelligence agency involvement in the McCann case. My gut instinct is not, but again, who knows? Um, I'm, I'm not sorry if we're of anything, and my gut instinct is not. But again, I can't, I can't, I can't prove either way. Question from Alpha: Did the media? How did the media really find out about the story so soon? Um, I don't know specifics of it, but but that's a great question. I mean, was a press release released? You know, was it was it off the back of the fact that the police began to just obviously get it into the media? quick as possible and um, being a child um she would have immediately been classed as certainly in the uk um as a high risk misper high risk missing person so um when someone goes missing in the uk um you go out initially and you fill in a computer system called compact you fill the details in now if that person's elderly or they're on medication or they have mental health issues um, they're given a score almost like a gravitas score of where they are. So, for example, if someone is always going missing, you know, and they always turn up at a friend's house, um, it doesn't mean the police don't care and wouldn't be out looking for them, but the level of urgency wouldn't be there. Whereas if you've got someone that's never been missing before or, or, or a young child, then that would immediately go straight to the top of the, the list as being an urgent, urgent thing. In your experience, do you think it was normal for the parents to go and play tennis? No. No, I don't think it was normal. The same way if you guys are aware of a case called Philpots. 
McPhilpot. Um, in fact, one of the co-conspirators had just been released from prison today. Um, so if, for those that are not aware of this in England, I'll, I'll kind of bring the, I'll tell you back up with what you're asking. But in England, we had a guy, um, a very bizarre man, who was married, but he also had his girlfriend living in a motorhome on the drive. So they would sort of swap with his wife and his girlfriend. Uh, his wife had enough of this, and so she dumped him. And he had this idea to set the house on fire. And this guy had about 13 kids. Um, and there were about six kids in the house at the time. And what happened was he didn't realize the fire would spread so quickly and all of the kids died. Um, are you aware of that, that case? I have famous. heard something. I remember oh, something about that in the news. Yeah. yeah. The TV yeah. show called uh, Judge Rinder's Crime Stories in the UK. I worked on that. Um, so, so yeah. What was the original question again, Sean? Sorry. So the original question, <laughs> I think we've direct, we've come off the track. Well, come how could they move the body if they were in the spotlight of the world's press? Well, if you follow one of the accounts that I mentioned, okay, whereby let's let's just you know run an alleged assertion. They've given her a sedative. Something's happened. They've come back. They discovered her. They thought, wow, you know. So they've potentially secreted her. Um, they've gone for dinner. They've got then they've gone through the illusion that Maddie's that she's missing, right? So this is some. This is my assertion. This is some people's um, assertion. They've then waited three days, um, got the car, then they've moved her, then they've raised. Sorry, then they've raised the alarm. There's not. Sorry, sorry, they've raised the alarm three days later. Is what I'm saying. I'm getting confused. So, so they've already moved her, and then they raised the alarm. Is what I'm saying. So, so there wasn't any spotlight on them. Um, you know, there was a potentially a two to three day window to move her, and then raise the alarm is what, what I meant. I found the original question. It was, how did the media find out the story so soon? Yeah, so so similarly, it's, it's kind of about the media aspect of it. Um, I think, I th I'm not sure if there was a press release produced or it would have probably been just a press conference because that, that was the point I brought on Philpot was that they said to Phil, Philpot, will you do a press conference for us? And he was like, yeah, no problem. Oh, that was it. That's the reason. Why you know playing tennis? Um, the reason why I brought those up was basically those kids were all lying in the morgue and they were out in the in the pub drinking. And even people that had been collecting money for them and and making sure they were okay, even very close friends thought it was like bizarre that they were out dancing, singing, you know, getting drunk. And the police were still out there investigating this alleged. Alleged crime. That was that was the reason I brought the puzzle. up. Um, so yeah, similarly, you'll find that certain people will engage in grandiose behaviour. They won't, even if they're very intelligent. You know, sometimes they just don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if that happened to me, I'd just be mortified. Just words wouldn't be able to describe it. Um, so yeah, going out playing tennis was was bizarre. Thanks for the super chats, guys. Jennifer's asking, do you think the whole truth will ever come out? I really hope so, and I pray it does, but my gut instinct is no, which is terrible. Next question. Yeah. Why did the McCanns refuse to answer 37 police questions, and what does that say about them? I think personally because it would open a massive can of worms that they couldn't get out of. So, again, it's this deception by omission. Um, if, I, if I don't say it, then you know, you've got no lines of inquiry. So by, by saying, I can't do it. It's like it's to me, Sean. If I didn't want to answer a question, I could say, well, to be honest, I've signed an NDA, so I can't discuss it. That's the easiest way out of that one. 
Um, and I think it's the same thing with these. They've just literally said that to sidestep any awkward potential questions that they're not already prepped. Why do they keep throwing money into this investigation? Again, you know, there's been no, you know, um, investigation in British history that's had this amount of millions. I think there's a lot of people out there still support them, still have hope um, that she's going to come back one day. So I think that's the reason people just have resonated with their situation that truly believe that they've gone through what they've said they've gone through um, and, and just, just, you know, just, just support them unequivocally. Do you feel there's a difference in the feeling about Kate and Jerry or are their reactions similar? I think it's fairly similar. I think they people tend to feel well, the 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 perception I believe is that people feel that Jerry's is the the more dominant of the of the dynamic of the of relationship. Um, you know, so he's he's sort of pulling the strings really. Um and she's the more sort of submissive um of the of the two. That's what that's that's kind of my take on it. What body language behaviours indicate that he's the more dominant? I think just generally he tends to take charge a lot more. Um, there's often times when she'll be speaking and then he will interrupt. It's almost, almost correct her um, to make sure she's still on script. And that tends to be quite consistent with a lot of people. With, I mean, again, uh, Philpot would do that a lot. Um, so it's, it's very prominently all about assertion of power and control. So if you watch some of the interviews back, you'll notice that he intervenes or corrects her at certain times, and she, she just goes with it. Right, we're down to the last five minutes or so, viewers. If you've got any questions for Darren, um, put them in the chat. Uh, Hillary said, are we sure that they played tennis the following day? How, how has that been confirmed? I don't know. I mean, that's that's just what I read like everybody else. I've not got access to any inside information, but that, that's that's what we were told. Um, CPE is saying they were giving her an anaesthetic, not just leaving her alone. She woke up and fell because she was doped up. That's a common view, doesn't it? That, that, that's certainly one of the theories out there, yeah. Um, let's see. Hello, Sean and guest. From a suspect's point of view, which is best, a prepared statement or to give an account? Um, playing devil's advocate, probably a preferred statement, but, um, a prepped statement because your attorney or solicitor, um, I'm not sure how it works in the States, but certainly in the UK, um, we did used to have that quite a lot where a, um, a prepared statement was read out by a solicitor on interview. Um, so if you feel that you have got something to hide, then that's that's probably the best way of going about it. Who is still paying for the McCann's legal team? I don't Who know. I don't know either. Emma, all right. Do you think that the McCanns showed any emotion when she was when she went missing? As from where we were sitting, we think that didn't they didn't look at all that bothered and hardly showed any emotion. I mean, people show emotions in lots of different ways, but I do agree that that level of stoicism it just just wasn't wasn't consistent with you know like someone's someone being in that situation. I mean, that's that's. Even though, you know, I do what I do, like sometimes it's so obvious, so blatant, you don't have to be any kind of expert to say, well, that doesn't stack up. And I'm sure a lot of the viewers watching right now will think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And yeah, you are, you know, because sometimes it's so blatant with people. You know, why would someone in this this distressed situation um, be, put, you know, why are they not reacting? And yeah, people do sometimes. I mean, I've delivered 
So, for example, if someone got killed in a car crash or, you know, passed away and I had to go and tell the family, I have had it sometimes. I mean, I had one particular where an older lady passed away and I went to tell the sister and the first question was, what's going to happen to the house? I should left it to me. And I was like, sorry, can we just go back? Like, your sister's passed away? So people do respond in, sometimes in, in bizarre ways. But I think going back to this context, I just thought, it, yeah, absolutely bizarre, the fact that we didn't see, um, you know, any emotion. We've not seen outright grief, stricken grief, you know. And people tend to move in and out as well. The main thing is that when people are trying to sort of feign, I mean, don't get me wrong, if they have been involved in this, allegedly, they're still going to have a degree of, of sorrow, of, of grief, um, but it's just because they do know the real outcome. Um, that's that's kind of how they're able to, or they've got to suppress it to a, to a degree. They're trying to suppress all their outward leakage, um, but for them not to, to display certain emotions, I just thought it was incredibly bizarre. I'm going to paraphrase this next question because there's a bit of extreme language in it. Um, you're getting asked as to whether looking at the body language cues, there was anything to indicate that Jerry could be abusive. I I can't say that I've seen that, but I have heard snippets of things where that, that's an element. I've also heard that there's a sexual element to this the whole thing as well. Um, Allegedly. <laughs> Snap jinx. All right, so Elaine, I first heard Jerry on the radio saying abduction. I didn't know anything at the time about the story, but all I remember thinking was people don't use that word. Question mark. He sounded like an actor. What do you think about that? Yeah, again, people cannot very often prepare in their mind what they're gonna 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 say and do. Um, it sounds so. For example, um, there's um people may be aware of a contraction. So <clears throat> if if you accuse me of something, Sean, and then I haven't got any, I'm I'm, I'm guilty. I've got no time to think about um, my own response. So if you said, um, be honest, did you steal that 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 wallet? If I'm guilty, I'll say, no, I did not steal that wallet. I won't say, no, I didn't. Are you crazy? I didn't do anything, right? They'll absolutely mirror your your question. So when you say, did you, they'll say, no, I did not. So an innocent person is, is going to use a contraction as in didn't, like have not, have not, hadn't. Whereas a guilty person statistically is more likely not to use a contraction. Um, you know, they will repeat verbatim what you asked. Um, and also sarcasm is always a good one as well. You know, if people, if you say to somebody, and this is true in any situation that you feel someone's being deceptive, you know, um, I once overheard somebody say, oh, be honest, are you cheating on me? And then the guy said, yeah, uh, yeah, of course I am. And I'm cheating on you with your sister and I'm seeing the neighbour as well. Well, he's trying to find you all seeing the sister. But then he, he chucked in the actual bit of sarcasm and that's to muddy the waters. So people will generally, I mean, if somebody says, oh, you, if my older I said, you cheated on me, I go, you crazy? What? Where do you got that from? You know, you wouldn't say, yeah, of course I am. I'm, I'm, I'm the woman at the corner, corner shop. Um, so sarcasm is a big red flag as well. Wow, we're almost out of time. There's still tons of questions. Let me just see if I can find um, any that. All right, what happened to the cadaver dog evidence? I'm not sure about that. Me neither. Interesting. All the blood samples. Um, uh, the high car. Did aliens abduct her? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> what about the translator that was suspected? I think he was um, discounted, wasn't he? Yes. Early yeah, on in the case. Involved in that, I don't think. 
Um, right, and we got the other guests about to come in as well. So, Darren, this has been absolutely fascinating. I could speak to you all day. Obviously, uh, the viewers could too. There's so many questions. Can you just let the viewers know where they can find you and support you, please? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm in a TV show with a guy called uh, Judrinda, which is a show in the UK, which is on Apple TV, um, on the Crime Investigation Channel in the UK, and you can also find it on Amazon Prime. Um, if you're in the UK, I've actually got a live UK tour happening in 2024, and that's a live interactive event where I look at some serial killers, and I also kind of interact with the audience and teach you basically how to, how to spot a liar. So that's in 24. And then I've got my new book coming out um, in April, which is called, To Be Honest With You, because statistically, most people lie to you right after they say the phrase, to be honest with you, Sean. <laughs> oh, I'm going to check your book out as well, Darren. Again, huge thank you for coming on, and we hope to see you again. And thanks to the viewers as well for all the great questions. So cheers, thanks, Darren. Thanks, Appreciate it. Thank but, you, sir. It, Goodbye. All right. So next up, we have got Les Knight coming in. And then at 7.30, we've got Mark Shaw coming in in 30 minutes. So Stephen's going to come in and I'm going to take my break. Cheers. Good evening. Hey, Les, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, Stephen. How about you? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, I think this might be my first foray into the voluntary human extinction. Oh, movement. wonderful. So I'm really looking forward to picking your brain All right. on it. But maybe maybe you can just unpack that for us. Let, let us know exactly what the movement is, what its goals are, and how you sure. became involved. Yeah. Well, the voluntary human extinction movement is a humane alternative to the involuntary human extinction that we are working so hard to bring about, and uh, it will benefit uh, both humans and the biosphere, because as there are fewer and fewer of us, there'll potentially be more of everything for all life. Okay, so I mean, so we're looking at, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the, 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 the feeling is there are far too many humans, resources are scar scarce, our, our uh, presence on this planet is leading to the extinction of other species, you know, war, famine, yep. things like that. And I mean, I suppose philosophically, you know, the idea that humans, no conscious human life on the planet would be a net benefit uh in some sense no more pain no more suffering uh it makes sense but in a practical sense i mean can we expect humans to really really get on board with this idea <laughs> yeah you know it really hasn't caught on like i was hoping <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the odds on our success are about the same as the odds on us uh caring for 10 billion people at the end of the century is pretty slim well, I mean, would your perspective change then, perhaps, if there was some, you know, scientific advancement, some revolutionary way of producing clean fuel, for instance, or, you know, a food source that would alleviate farming and things like that? Would you start to change your perspective on the presence of humans? Uh, no, because uh, wherever we live, not much else lives. It would be great if we had uh, green energy and so on, so we wouldn't be trashing the planet so much and maybe... Uh, you know, the billions of people who don't have enough could get it. But no, as, as long as we uh, are here, we take wildlife habitat. 
Okay. I mean, I suppose people would say like humans have, you know, we've evolved over millions of years. I think the kind of form we're in now is with somewhere around about 300,000 years, 250,000 years. Mm-hmm. It, seems, it seems like, you know, this sort of thing is a natural progression for humans in terms of, you know, using resources. Um, and we have an uncanny ability to survive and adapt barring some sort of natural disaster, I would, would imagine. So, uh, is there not an, a case here to be made that, you know, human consciousness is such a, a rare and, and wonderful thing that has, has led to lots of great, you know, beauty, art, culture, uh, you know, Netflix, for example. Is, <laughs> is, is, is it not worth preserving uh, just for the, these reasons? Yeah. Shakespeare, we've got some wonderful things. These sure. are all very good for humans to enjoy. And until we go extinct, we will have the opportunity, I hope, to enjoy all those things. But... Uh, Human consciousness, of course, we think is pretty darn special, but, you know, there's whale consciousness and, and we have no idea about the consciousness of other species. They just don't, you know, write about it. <laughs> so, yeah, just that opposable thumb issue tends to hold the whale community back in terms of prolific literature, surely. Um, so, I mean, people may look at your movement and, and what, what it stands for and assume, Les, that you, you just have, a, you know, you're a misanthrope. You, you can't stand humans. You're, you know, you're deeply bitter. I'm not getting that vibe from you, I'll be honest. <laughs> no. But I mean, maybe maybe you can clear that up because a lot of people will suspect that you just don't like humans and, and are deeply sure. unhappy. Yeah, it's a natural thing to think at first that, uh, you know, if you, if you don't like people, you want them to go extinct. But how we get there is important. I think if I were a misanthrope, I wouldn't be promoting an involuntary. I wouldn't be promoting a voluntary uh, extinction that uh, will benefit everyone. And and in order to get there, we need uh, universal reproductive freedom. The uh, health services for everyone are sadly lacking, and so that alone, even if we aren't successful, would be a great uh, human rights achievement. Okay, so just at this point, I would remind the the chat that if you want to get some questions uh, to Les, hit the hit the keyboard now, and I'll, I'll put the best ones to him. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned this idea of the sort of an involuntary movement as well. And do, do you worry? I mean, there are certain movements where uh, you know will attract a certain type of person. Obviously, every kind of ideology has its extreme fringes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with this ideology, which is centered around you know human extinction, obviously the extreme place you could take that would be you know direct murder caught you know direct act of trying to achieve genocide do you, do you worry that something as kind of uh, emphatic as this in terms of human existence could be kind of a, a beacon to, to sort of genocidal humans no uh the name voluntary human extinction movement uh kind of sums it up if anybody is does does things that aren't voluntary they're and they're not part of this movement and there are people already out there killing other humans they have for ever since before we became human, maybe, I don't know. But we do seem to have a propensity for uh, conflict and uh, often violent enough to do severe harm to each other. There's another thing that would not exist. You know, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, one of his last interviews said that, uh, you know, after all these years and all the things we've done to each other, maybe we should just go extinct. And that's a little different perspective than I have, but, uh, you know, he's, he's got a point, you know. What if, 
then say for instance there was some sort of hollywood level extinction event occurring let's say a meteorite or something like that and humans i mean this would do this would destroy the earth completely for sure but humans being the industrious and advanced uh, species that we are develops a plan to prevent this and the saving the planet and everything on it how how would cook i mean aren't you kind of risking a complete annihilation of the planet by advocating for no humans at all surely the humans could be placed to actually you know best place to actually save the planet by existing right yeah the the, uh, the risk uh, assessment uh, balancing it out there are uh, two million species at, at risk of going extinct and all of them because of us and there is a slim possibility and i see no reason why we shouldn't try to uh, deflect a meteor coming in to hit the planet. Uh, no, it's no point in letting it hit. It would cause so much destruction. They will eventually, of course, as we uh, go extinct, if, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, we won't be around uh, for the billion years, five billion years that uh, the, the sun has. So we will go away eventually and meteors will hit. But uh, I don't think our presence uh, is worth the off chance that we could prevent, uh, um, like the massive uh, uh, meteor that hit uh, 66 million years ago. Why extinction then? It seems quite extreme why not a, a, you know a vast reduction in, in population to a level where our environmental impact was you know negligible uh, right. and, and you know we could it seems like a lot of the things that you're concerned about could be reduced significantly why why complete extinction it's true as we uh, went extinct and there were fewer and fewer of us the uh, damage that we cause would be less and less and hopefully we would clean up our little messes like nuclear waste on our way out but it, even before we became homo sapiens, as soon as we got fire, we started impacting the uh, environment, uh, probably adversely causing some local extinctions, setting fire to the grassland and making it easier to avoid predators. And especially after we uh, became homo sapiens, we have been uh, causing extinctions. Uh, it's hard to tell because their fossils are so few, but um, we we have probably been causing extinctions all along and it has just accelerated to the point it is now. I, I mean, I've always been of the mind that, um, you know, human human populations are huge issue. It's going to be a huge issue going forward in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, just even housing, for instance, the practicalities of that, uh, you know, yeah. producing enough food, the amount of uh, environmental damage, sort of agriculture, factory farming mm -hmm. courses, things like that. But then I'll I'll turn on the Joe Rogan show and, and see Elon Musk saying that the, you know, the biggest <laughs> threat to humanity is depopulation, which right. had me scratching my head. And now I will freely admit, Elon Musk is a far brighter gentleman than I am. So I'm just wondering, what, what does he, no. what does, no? What is, well, what does Elon Musk know that we don't know? <laughs> well, he doesn't know how to read a graph, <laughs> a simple <laughs> population chart. You know, the, the two previous billion uh, humans were added in 12 years each. The last billion was added in 11 years. I don't think we have to worry about the population dropping. Now, if you are a capitalist and you want to sell a lot of cars and you're way up on the pyramid scheme that is capitalism, you want a lot more down at the bottom. 
not just a few, a lot. The more, the better. Okay. I mean, so uh, obviously the, the implication is that, you know, uh, Elon Musk wants an increase in population because that'll obviously right. line his pockets, his more customers. I'm, pre I'm not pretty sure that's not the reasons that he, the stated reasons that he gave. Are, are you aware of what reasons he, he put forward for this increase in population? I, I, I appreciate I'm asking you to tell me the thoughts of you somebody know, else. I, I'm really not sure. Uh, no. He said that it will uh, result in the uh, collapse of civilization if we don't start, start having more babies. And, uh, you know, babies don't do a lot to help civilization that I could see. I guess he's figuring Useless. it. Yeah. <laughs> Useless little creatures for I the, know. the longest time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, this this all seems. I mean, on the face of it, from a logical perspective, if you know, if you're if you want to, you know, directly address the things you're concerned about, the environment, uh, extinction of other creatures. Obviously, humans not being here, that makes a perfectly logical uh, sense in terms of a solution. But I mean, is it not a case of deeply unrealistic utopian thinking to the point where is it even worth advocating on behalf of this idea? Because once you put it forward and, and say uh, human extinction would be a great solution and then uh -huh. the, their people just say well, do we have to and you say no <laughs> right. it's voluntary they'll say no thank you and then that that will right. just go go ahead i mean it, it some people may be forgiven for thinking that perhaps you're not entirely serious about this well there is some humor in it of course without a little levity the gravity will just bring us right down that you know each new person that is not created on this planet is one more uh, opportunity for wildlife, and also it avoids the suffering that uh, this new person will likely endure in the next 80 years if they live that long, because I don't like to get all doom and gloom about it, but things are not looking all that great for the biosphere. Uh, that alone, you don't have to be an antinatalist to say, you know, I think it would be cruel to bring somebody into existence at this time. Maybe if things get better, there's no indication that they will, but they could. And if they do, maybe rethink it. Oh, the reason I, I advocate complete uh, extinction is that it was only about 70,000 years ago. We were down to less than 10,000 of us. And now look, we are just so freaking fecund. We, we will just get right up there again. Okay, well, so just to play devil's advocate here, and, and um, I, I'll preface this question by letting you know I am a vegetarian, mostly for ethical reasons, but a lot of people would say, well, why why is animal life so important? Why do they deserve to live over humans, for instance? Why should we prioritize the continued existence uh, of, of the uh, animal kingdom over our own self-interest? Right, and, and it's not, I wouldn't include our livestock, you know, between us and our livestock, 96% uh, of the mammal biomass is us and our livestock. But wildlife, if you use a balance scale and you put one human, one species, us, on one side, and you put all the species going extinct on the other side, even if you give us, you know, we invented the balance beam, we should be able to have a bit more uh, importance. So even if you give us like a million times more importance, the balance still shifts towards our extinction for the sake of all the other uh, species on the planet. Sorry, I just to clarify on that point, you think, I mean, do you think our extinction is just inevitable as a natural progression, regardless of whether we've, we've openly volunteered? To sure, yes, that's right. 
No doubt. Uh, and it's just how we get there and how soon. Uh, you know, there are estimates at the end of the century and a few people going, oh, by 2030. Uh, well, you know, you're going to have some estimates that uh, go way over. But uh, at the rate we're going, if we continue as we are, I really don't see how we can uh, last till the end of the century because there are so many uh, being added. Now, if we could have universal reproductive freedom and uh, it, the 121, unintend, 121 million unintended conceptions uh, every year, uh, only 48 million of them are carried to term, and we're increasing by 70 million. So, you know, we'd still be increasing by 22 million. But if we really wanted to, there have been very successful voluntary uh, um, movements to uh, improve birth rates. And when they do, those countries do very well. Vietnam is, is uh, one of the reasons that they are doing so well now is that they uh, their birth rate lowered. You get the de uh, demographic uh, dividend by having a lower birth rate. Isn't it just a complete non-starter in in the context of uh, of you know the the spread and um, adherence to say Catholicism, which is very you know pro uh, pro procreation, mm -hmm. uh, you know very anti contraceptive. Uh, mm -hmm. This is seen. Uh, you know, wed with the idea of God, a God-given right and duty to reproduce and, and bring new life into the world. It's, you know, seen as one of the most important things you can do. So just that aspect of it, how, how, does, how are you going to convince deeply religious people? Second, I mean, bringing up children is probably one of the most wonderful and unique uh, and amazing human mm -hmm. experiences humans can have. And you, you'd be openly telling people to deny mm -hmm. themselves that as well. Do you not feel a little bit like uh, the Grinch in that respect? Right. Well, you know, if there were no children on the planet, our societies would be greatly diminished. But is it fair? Is it not exploitative to... Uh, create new people just so that we can enjoy the most fun part of their lives and then, you know, send them off to fend for themselves. Like, I just love kittens. Don't like cats too much. I just want to have a kitten. They're, they're fun. And they'll, they'll have to be out the door as soon as they turn into a cat. So, yes, it, it is. Uh, it, I, I enjoy children a lot. I'm a teacher. I've been working with children for over 40 years. But um, I also feel rather uh, sorry for them. Uh, as to what kind of life they're going to have uh, over the next lifespan, 80 years, by the end of the century. Just just moving back to this natural extinction that you believe is yes. mm -hmm. on the horizon, I think a, a lot of people who will turn themselves so-called climate skeptics who don't accept uh, climate change perhaps or certainly don't accept the idea that men have a the humankind rather has a, has a direct hand in it. They will often point to various doomsday predictions on this score over the you know over the years. You know, if they'd be told that by such a date there'll be no more fish in the sea, by such a date the weather will be unbearable here, and that these dates all seem to come uh, and pass, and that we seem to be doing perfectly fine. Do you not worry that maybe um, the you know your your similar predictions might go the same way? Oh, I don't think there's any uh, doubt that we will go. Uh involuntarily extinct rather than voluntarily extinct it's it's uh, aspirational but uh as you mentioned there won't be any fish in the sea after a certain point we we are a super predator over the 
eons of uh, evolution, every now and then a super predator comes along. They get so good at killing their prey that they kill all their prey. And of course, then they go extinct. But with us, we'll eat just about anything. We're eating krill, for goodness sakes. So it's going to take a lot longer for this particular super predator to go extinct. Sorry, I missed that. What, what are we eating now? Yeah, I know. You can get krill. Uh, krill oil is supposed to be good for you. <laughs> oh, okay. That's that's news to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I live in England, so, you know, much of our cuisine is, is based on a dare half the time uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway. But I mean, just looking back at this idea of innovation again, because it does feel mm -hmm. like we are kind of on the on the precipice of uh, some great new technology that would solve our energy crisis. I know things such as kind of uh, lab meat, it's sometimes known as cultured meat, yeah. would solve a lot of our issues mm -hmm. with uh, the pollution from factory farming and CO2 emissions and things like that. Would, would it not be a more positive and realistic message to kind of advocate in that direction? And, and, and instead of looking for an all or nothing solution, maybe leaning towards a reduction or an improvement? Yes. Well, all of these improvements will be great. But to come right out and say, that the intentional creation of one more of us by anyone, anywhere, is can be justified, would be uh, pandering to existing uh, misconceptions. That a lot of the trouble we have is that scientists know and they don't say because they don't want to be seen as radicals. But I don't care. I'm not a scientist and I have no reputation, and so I can come right out and say, look, you can't justify creating a new human today. How how big would you say this this movement is? I, I mean, how, can you do you have a, no, a kind of number or estimate of the number of members, if if there are members, if that's the right word? Yeah, it, it's not an organization, so it's just people who agree with it. There there are probably a few million, based on uh, how many people write to me and say or email me and say, I thought I was the only one on the planet who thought this way. You know, there there are people who are arriving at this conclusion on their own. Look around and say, you know. Without humans, this would be a pretty nice place. And then they go, well, okay, how are we going to do this? And if they're at all humane and uh, have some compassion, they'll say, well, we should do it voluntarily. Let's just stop procreating and go extinct. <laughs> forgive, forgive the crassness of, of this this question, of course, but obviously the, the the idea is to stop procreating as well. I mean, why? I mean, why are these people not uh, thinking? You know, if, if they're that passionate about it, they can just kind of remove themselves from humanity voluntarily anytime they like, which is not mm -hmm. something I'd I'd want or advocate for. But obviously, right. if, if we're going to follow this to its logical conclusions, if people mm -hmm. think humans are the problem, they understand this about humans, they could simply take their own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, this has been suggested only twice today, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, three times. No, but you're not you're not advocating it. You're just asking. No, <laughs> no. Uh, our our motto is "May we live long and die out." We'll all be dead soon enough. There's no sense in rushing it, especially in my case. You know, if I got 20 years, that's that's pretty good. So 20 more uh, human impact years. Whereas if we are able to help a couple avoid an unwanted conception and they then don't carry it uh, to term that new human that's 80 years of impact so you know, compared to my 20 years that's Fair a lot enough. more <laughs> just got a question uh from the chat carrie rogers just to pick up on what we were speaking about earlier what sort of time scale is less thinking of for the end of humans i'm, I'm pretty sure that re maybe a, that refers to the, the you know the natural extinction of humans Yes, yes, that would it would be a hundred years and maybe even longer because uh, 
that's assuming it catches on right away because we would put a lot of uh, energy into um, longevity, keeping alive everyone who is uh, in existence. So you think within within 100 years, we're looking at a, a natural human extinction event? Well, that's, you know, if everybody says, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> How many people watching this uh, podcast? It's like, yeah. oh, it's a lot. But it, even if every one of them said, dying, that guy's got an idea. I'm going to stop procreating right now, tonight. I'm going to put on a condom. <laughs> but, I mean, this brings me back to my my earlier question i suppose in, in the fact that not this is never going to happen is it no we're not going to get the world to voluntarily stop procreating so wouldn't your time and efforts be better spent channeled towards something that could you know produce tangible results in terms of you know increasing well-being whilst reducing you know famine mm -hmm. uh, sorry um, environmental damage things like that sure sure well the fact that we're not going to succeed is another good reason not to procreate but uh, if I really wanted to uh, cease promoting this idea, which the reason I do it is so that people can rethink uh, what it means to procreate. Uh, you know, natalist, pro uh, natalist programming, cultural conditioning, uh, a lot of people have never considered not procreating. And so if I can help them think about it, maybe they really don't want to do that. And maybe they, the offspring that they would have would be better off not coming into existence with that particular uh, parent. So it helps just to get people thinking about it. Are you, are you not fighting hundreds of years of you know evolution and adaptation and human nature in the sense that mm -hmm. if we were just to boil it down to uh, you know our, our giant ape brains, it seems that we do tend to lean towards anything that increases the chances of passing on our genes. And obviously yes. uh, procreating is the chief um, uh, way one achieves that. Are, are you fighting yes. a losing battle just with human nature in general? It, 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 I don't think it's human nature exactly because we don't uh, know when we have sex that we are uh, creating a new human. So it is the drive to have sex that uh, creates the new human. We can, intervene in that if we have the wherewithal hundreds of millions of women do not have the wherewithal they're denied their uh human right to not procreate uh what was the question <laughs> um you know you fight in a, a losing battle against human human yes, nature yes uh yeah it may as well be biological as ingrained as it is and all societies have evolved to be natalist because if you if a society wasn't natalist they would be overpowered by one that was. And same with the religions you mentioned earlier. The, they're all natalists. If they weren't, like the Shakers and a few, they'd just die out. So uh, evolution, social evolution has uh, created a very natalistic society and uh, social institutions like the church. They're very, uh, not just, of course, they want more uh, adherence and it's easier to uh, breed them than to convert them because you know you take that to an adult and go here's how it works and they're going uh i don't <laughs> think so <laughs> yeah no that's that's a fair a fair observation so at what point in your life did you catch on to this idea and think there's something to this and i mean are there any like thought leaders that are, you know you could say uh champions of this movement or who started the movement well when i got the uh idea that we should stop it was in 1970, and we had just had the first Earth Day in the States, 
and the idea that there were too many of us and there were only 3.5 billion at the time uh, was just part and parcel of the uh, environmental movement. It, everybody considered, yeah, the fewer of us there are, we've got to stop you know, increasing so much. The trouble is, uh, stop at two offspring became the motto and uh, sort of legitimized what people were going to do anyway. And they're going, yeah, for the environment, we're only replacing ourselves. Well, of course, two plus two is four, and then those two will have to, and it, it is, uh, as Malthus said, we will increase uh, geometrically. So uh, that's when I started saying, no, don't stop at two, stop at once. And of course, uh, Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb came out at that time, and there was an organization called Zero Population Growth. Of course, I joined that, even though they were recommending stop at two. Like, Come on, let's get more radical here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another question we've had here from a nexus do the members of vh emt offer themselves up as the f the first in line to go so i think that ties into my uh, rather cross queer <laughs> question earlier uh, i mean i suppose another way of looking at that as well is uh, do i mean if you don't mind me asking do you have children of, of your own do, do various members have children and how, how does that kind of tally with your world oh, sure yeah there, quite a few people have uh had offering before they came to this conclusion. And as far as I know, I have not uh, co-created a new human. Uh, how would I know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did get fixed fairly young, 25, but you know, anyway, uh, no, I do not have any biological offspring, but there are 2 billion children in our family, not just the Knight family, but the, you know, the whole human family. Yeah, two, two nights on this evening, not yeah. normally. As far as I'm aware. Um, okay. Well, I mean, I've I've really enjoyed this this conversation, even though it, you know it does focus around uh, you know human extinction for sure. And I'm just wondering what what kind of reactions do you get from people when you when you push this forward? Oh, because... You know, it, it's really amazing. I, I have uh, information tables and booths, and uh, even if people don't fully appreciate it, they say, you know, yeah, that does seem like a good idea. Not that I'm going to stop procreating, <laughs> and I would like grandkids, <laughs> but uh, but it's really been favorably received. Maybe the presentation helps. We're no, we're uh, we're presented well, very lightly. Just to uh, play devil's advocate again, I mean, why would the planet be worth preserving? Why? Why again? I suppose, but going back to this ethical question of why would the animal kingdom or the animals have any? you know, bigger right to existence than, than we do, for instance. Why why is their well-being of more importance than our existence? Yes. In, in fact, uh, many have asked, uh, what good is a planet without humans on it? Uh, of course, it's the same good it was before we came along. But it, it's the idea is that, you know, we are a rather special species, I guess you could say. No other species does what we do. And uh, what we do is actually killing the biosphere. And I think uh, rather than uh, climate crisis being our uh, net, uh, what brings us down, uh, a collapse of the biosphere due to extinctions is far more likely. Uh, I think it, as we continue on as we are, well, first, we don't have the uh, insects that we used to. Your, your windscreen probably doesn't have many. And when I worked in a petrol station, I was washing them off of uh, windshields every time they pulled in. 
now it just doesn't happen. So that I think that indicates we can't live without insects. You know, we really can't. All right, so, Les. Well, I've, yeah. I've, I'll like I say I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Maybe you can just uh, let our viewers and listeners know where they can find out more yeah. information. Certainly, yeah. And I and I, I, I I'm sorry to end on on such a, a, a note as the insectageddon that's going on. But <laughs> uh, you know, if we take care of everybody who's here, that's what really counts. Take care of each other and uh, not create more of us, and we're able to care better for people. And it's it's vehement. .org, B-H-E-M-T dot org. Everything will be there. Les, it's been a pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. You too, brother. Take care. Take care. Bye. Fascinating topic for sure. I shall be bringing in our uh, next guest momentarily. Mark, how are you? Well, I don't know what to think if I'm going to be extinct here pretty soon. So <laughs> I think that I'm going to talk a little quicker than today, just in case. Yeah, time is of the essence. So I don't, I don't know how you. I mean, I, I think we've all woke up on various mornings and thought human level extinction might be a good thing. It depends if I've had my coffee, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, maybe you can just let our viewers and listeners let us know about your work. What what takes up the bulk of your time? Well, first, I'd like to say first year producer Ash has been great in getting in touch with me, and I'm not much of a technical person, so she helped me through this. Second, I wish we had a podcast like yours in the U.S. Uh, far too little is really investigated in this country, and we're going to talk about that today in terms of how the whole Warren Commission investigation back in the 60s was an abomination. They were never looking for the truth. I have an eyewitness who was there at the hearings, uh, uh, you know, who was a, a legislative assistant for one of the uh, Warren Commission members. Frankly, I'm really disgusted, frustrated, whatever you want to say over this shocking new evidence that I, I've only found here in the last, oh, two or three months uh, that it changes everything about anything we knew with the assassination. So uh, I've been on your show before. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an author, a lawyer turned author. Uh, so I call myself a former lawyer. So that doesn't cause any problems. Uh, but I've been, uh, you know, an investigative reporter. I've, I've uh, covered uh, the national trials, the Tyson, OJ, and, and Kobe Bryant cases. Uh, but I've written almost 30 books now. And the last six in this last, uh, let's see, 10 years or so have been all about uh, the JFK assassination through the eyes of a journalist that we talked about the last time I was on this show named Dorothy Kilgallen. And if you don't mind, an awful lot of people may not who, know who that was, but she was a courageous, brilliant woman uh, who was a college dropout only to become what the New York Post called the, the, the most powerful female voice in America in the early 1960s. And she had a radio show listened to by a million people. Her newspaper column was syndicated to 200 newspapers across the country. Many of your listeners up in the age where I am will remember her from a hit CBS show that was on for 10 years called What's My Line? And they guessed unusual occupations by people. Uh, you know, maybe it was a woman sports writer for the NFL or the, the person owned a wax museum or whatever it may be. And she was the star of that show, kind of like a prosecutor who asked the best questions. I learned about her uh, about six or seven years ago. And uh, she, she died mysteriously. We'll, we'll talk about that in 1965. But then she kind of disappeared from the face of the earth. 
And it wasn't until I published this book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, that's Dorothy right there on the cover, about her that she was kind of uh, born again in some ways. And people then went ahead and paid attention to what she was doing because uh, she was the first one to challenge J. Edgar Hoover on the Oswald alone uh, verdict, the conclusion and all of that. And uh, you know, she, she was in, unlike all these experts out there and these authors, Dorothy was in Dallas. Uh, she was a close friend of JFK's. She was at the at Dealey Plaza days after the assassination. She was at the Ruby trial. She interviewed Jack Ruby twice, and we'll talk, talk about that. So she was the real thing. And I had then a source there, and I went ahead and wrote two or three books based on uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's life and times. I connected them in a book called Collateral Damage with the death of Marilyn Monroe. And then I was going to quit. But last year, I got a, a, an email uh, from a gentleman named uh, Morris Wolf. And, uh, you know, there's almost 11 million views, YouTube views of my presentations and interviews uh, about, these, about the JFK assassination and Dorothy and Marilyn in, in the world. And uh, I hear from people who watch these. Just like people today, I guarantee you, and I hope, will get in touch with me because they give me tips. They tell me things I didn't know, and then I follow up on them as a, as a former criminal defense, defense attorney looking at motive and things like that. So this guy, Morris Wolf, sends me an email. I watched a presentation of yours at the, at the Allen Library near Dallas. And I looked at that presentation and I saw the name Dorothy Kilgallen. I always get a chill when I say this because so few people remember her from the 50s and 60s. So I sent him an email and he just started in. I mean, he, he, it's too bad I couldn't have recorded that conversation. I've since recorded a couple with him, but he just took off. And he said, first, Mr. Shaw, I want, to, want you to know, I was a Yale lawyer. I went to work for Bobby Kennedy uh, when I got out of, co out of college, got my law degree. And I have to tell you that uh, I worked for Bobby Kennedy. I helped him write the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And more than that, I rode my bicycle, and you talk about disturbing information that I've come up with shocking evidence. I rode my bicycle between the Attorney General's office and the White House, carrying secret documents in envelopes between Bobby Kennedy and JFK. And he said, Mr. Shaw, you know why I had to do that? Because they knew that J. Edgar Hoover was tapping their phones. Now just think about that, Stephen, at the highest echelons of our government, the FBI director is tapping the attorney general and the president's phone. So that was the first just knock me over moment when he told me that. And then he said, uh, when I left uh, Senator Kennedy's or uh, A.G. Kennedy's office, he asked me about working for a member of the Warren Commission, uh, Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. And I began doing that. And I worked with him. And I actually, Mr. Shaw, went to the hearings and watched the investigation, watched the testimony, and so on and so forth. And of course, my ears are perking up, and nobody's ever gotten inside the Warren Commission before now like that. That is a whistleblower who was right there. Dorothy was in Dallas uh, and, and after the assassination. Now I've got a primary witness who was there at the Warren Commission. And he starts in and he says, you know, I went to the hearings with Senator Cooper uh, and I, uh, in, our, in his sob, and I sat there in the back row, and then on the way back, he would tell me things like this. The commissioner members know about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. 
It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Chief Justice Earl Warren keep pushing the Oswald alone conclusion. The inability to gather all evidence in certain areas, as well as a number of suspicious circumstances deduced from the record has made me preclude the conclusion, the determination that Oswald and Oswald acted alone without knowledge, encouragement, or assistance of any person and perpetrated the assassination. And then just a couple more. Uh, the commission members want to bury the truth under a pile of stones. Our president, Lyndon Johnson, wants to cover up and move on. Uh, and then the commission members say the Oswald conclusion, and he was telling me this, what, what Cooper told him while the hearings are going on, they tell, the commission members say the Oswald conclusion will be uh, good for God and country, but there is internal corruption. I don't know why. So that's an eyewitness to history right there. And we all missed it. I missed it. I missed it with all of my research. I never knew about it till Mr. Wolf got in touch with me. And he was a remarkable, a remarkable man. Um, he was uh, he, he was known as a very distinguished individual. He worked on on several projects, including the Civil Rights Act. He defended Raoul Wallenberg. If you don't know who that is, that's the uh, Swedish uh, Jew who saved more than a hundred thousand lives. Uh, during the Holocaust and wrote a book about that because he tried to get him released from a, a Russian prison. So this was a ironclad, uh, credible witness like Dorothy Kilgallen. And when he told me these things, it made me really stop and think about, wait a minute, this, this whole Warren Commission uh, investigation was an abomination. And you'll see where I took that in a little bit, but I want to stop there because I'm sure you have some questions. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the the JFK assassination is something people are fascinated with. And obviously this is tied into various conspiracies. We've had lots of guests on this show who all have weird and, and wonderful theories uh, as to what happened. Have, have you uh, have you formulated uh, a working theory of what really or what you think really took place on that day? Or is it a case of you just cannot accept the findings of the Warren Commission and you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, the, the jury's out on what actually did happen? Well, we can learn from Dorothy Kilgallen because she was a very close friend of JFK's. In fact, what triggered her 18-month investigation, all of her columns, everything that she did, was a trip that she took to the White House with her young son, Carrie. And Pierre Salinger set it up for JFK to go ahead and meet with them in the library. And when they were there, JFK made a big fuss over Carrie about letters he brought from the, his third grade class to JFK. And that meant so much to her that when she uh, learned that JFK had been killed, she wrote a column that said, what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy making a big fuss about his third grade papers. This is the man who was killed in Dallas. And at that point, she went right to Dallas. She uh, went to Dealey Plaza. She interviewed Jess Curry, the Dallas police chief, who told her, by the way, and that's in uh, both the reporter knew too much and the new book, uh, Fighting for Justice, all of that's in there. Curry told her, what did he do when he first heard the shots from two limousines behind JFK? He sent his officers to the overpass. So she knew right away that there were these conflicts in this Oswald alone situation because he wasn't interested in the depository, book depository at all. So what did she do then? Well, she, she ingratiated herself with Melvin Belli, who was the lawyer for Jack Ruby. She sat in the front row at the Ruby trial. She listened to the testimony. You know, Ruby always said that he 
happened by the Dallas Police Department basement and there was Ruby or there was Oswald. Well, she heard testimony that he had told uh, somebody, uh, somebody of, of uh, importance, I will be there when Oswald's going to be transferred. I will get in making like a, a, a reporter. I will use my friends in the police department to get in there. And, and Dorothy was able to prove all of that through her columns. Her first one was the Oswald file must not close. Uh, uh, Dallas police linked to Ruby killing Oswald. I mean, she, and they're all in the books. Uh, she, she just did not believe uh, Hoover who was uh, shouting Oswald alone, Oswald alone, Oswald alone. So Dorothy then went ahead, interviewed Ruby, the only reporter out of 400 people to do, a journalist at the, at the trial to do so. And what she learned from him, as you'll find out, we don't specifically know. But let's go back in time a little bit so I can answer your question. We have to go back and look at the mindset of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, who of course, with, J, with LBJ, picked the members of the Warren Commission. The picture of the Warren Commission giving their report to Lyndon Baines Johnson is right there. And there, by the way, I got to go over here. Right there is John Sherman Cooper. And Morris Wolf told me, you can see how disgusted he is with the report. And I will tell you that his dissent that they were going to put in the report was not in there, even though it was promised, because you can see the look on his face and you can see him hiding behind another member, uh, Hale Boggs. So Dorothy goes there and she and she and she looks at this, but she starts thinking about uh, J. Edgar Hoover. JFK is dead, so he thinks to himself, "Wait a minute, could the FBI be responsible for not preventing preventing the JFK assassination? What can I do to button up all of that?" First thing he does, he goes ahead and confiscates the Dallas Police Department uh, documents from Curry. They're disgusted with what he does, but they can't help it. Second. He immediately basically steals JFK's body and sends it to Washington, D.C., based on the fact that he tells the public uh, the killing of a president is not a state crime. It's only a federal crime, which was just completely false. He sends it to Washington. So the autopsy, which a, a, famed, a forensic uh, scientist uh, tells me, and it was in, it's in the book, was the worst autopsy he had seen in 60 years. So now he's buttoned all that up but he's got to do more. And he hears there's going to be an investigation by the uh, state attorney general in Dallas or Congress. And he and LBJ, and I have audio recordings of them talking about this, decide that they've got to form their own commission and they form the Warren Commission. What does he do there? Well, he's got to be careful. He, he doesn't want himself investigated. LBJ doesn't himself investigate it because of his crazy uh, things he'd done before. They put Alan Dulles on the uh, commission, a former CIA director that Jack Kennedy uh, fired two years earlier because they can control those people. They put on there two other people that they can control in all of this. And so there's Dorothy out there doing her investigation and she's very dubious of what happens with the Warren Commission, especially when John Sherman Cooper, her friend that she knew and went to parties at his house and things like that, as Morris Cooper told me, um, she knows about the Warren Commission corruption. She then is given by Cooper Jack Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission. J. Edgar Hoover is furious. He sends two agents to her home. They interrogate her. And she, the most famous line by her, that by this woman of great integrity, uh, this reporter was, uh, when they were asking her about her sources, she said, I would rather die than reveal my sources. That's the kind of woman she was, the kind of reporter he, she was. 
So what does she do next? And this will get to the answer to your question. She learns about all of this information and Hoover knows it and she's starting to get into danger. Because what they did, Stephen, is they first of all, uh, she knew that uh, she went to New Orleans and who was in New Orleans but uh, Mafia Don Carlos Marcello. And Marcello is the one who Bobby Kennedy deported to Central America shortly after he became the attorney general. If you remember the 60 election, the Kennedys thought they were going to lose it. So they called in with Frank Sinatra, the mafia, to help them win West Virginia and Illinois. And they helped him. The deal was that if they, if JFK won and he did, we would leave the mafia alone. But Bobby Kennedy hated the mafia. And the first thing he did as attorney general was deport Carlos Marcello uh, to Central America. He came back to the United States and Dorothy was able to find out that what he said to himself is, wait a minute, I can't let Bobby Kennedy come after me again. And so what he did is he decided, look, I want to kill that rat Bobby Kennedy. But instead of doing that uh, and knowing that the JFK will come after me with everything the government has, uh, we'll orchestrate the death of JFK and Bobby Kennedy will be powerless. And the proof there is that's exactly what happened. He resigned as attorney general and never barred, bothered Marcello again. So Dorothy is suspicious. She was a great investigative reporter. She covered the Dr. Sam Shepard case, which may, you may remember was the fugitive film, the Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. I mean, she was a veteran reporter. So she decided, look, what do I need to do? And she decided to go to, to, Mar to uh, New Orleans where Marcello was. Uh, she went ahead and, and took a hairdresser with her to help her, a kind of a beefy guy, because she knew she was in danger. She was able to connect Marcello, Oswald, and Jack Ruby through her investigation in, uh, in Dallas. And what is the proof of her being right about this? Well, she went back to New York City and unfortunately, just like Marilyn Monroe was before she died, that she was going to the media about how the Kennedys had told her about matters of national security, including JFK wanting to uh, have uh, Castro assassinated. She went back to New York City and she said and told anybody who would listen, I'm gonna crack the JFK assassination wide open I, I know exactly what happened here. Uh, I'm writing a book for Random House. But also she said to her confidant, the hairdresser, if the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination, it would cost me my life. I'm afraid for my life and my family. I bought a gun. When she saw her son, Carrie, a photograph of her son, Carrie, in the New York Times running across Central Park, she knew that he had been followed and it scared her to death. These were the warnings to her to leave her leave all this alone. Unfortunately, there was a Judas who was a confidant of her who ended up being compromised by J. Edgar Hoover and telling them exactly what she was going to put put in her book. And when that happened, she was she was on her march to death. On November 8th, 1965, she was found dead in her uh, apartment, her townhouse, in a bed she never slept in, wearing her uh, false eyelashes her uh, uh, hairpiece and her makeup. Uh, she never slept there. Uh, and it was decided that, uh, you know, uh, by, the, by the medical examiner's office, they found an empty bottle of secondol and they decided that she had overdosed on drugs. No investigation whatsoever there. So here's the trail that you can, you can and I have a common sense approach to the uh, JFK assassination on my website, markshawbooks.com that people can look at. And this evidence that I mentioned is also there. So what happens is that, you know, she goes back, she figures out, first of all, uh, Oswald was involved in the JFK assassination. 
and and uh, and and that uh, the uh, the underworld figures, including Marcello, set that up. But Oswald is then a loose end. So they bring in Jack Ruby, who was uh, uh, they bring in uh, Melvin Bellhi, who is Jack Ruby's attorney, and uh, he represents Ruby in court and makes Ruby look crazy. So they button up that loose end. Who's the only loose end left? There's this crazy reporter, they say, and and Hoover called her uh, a dirty columnist in one of his uh, in one of his talks with uh, LBJ. She's going to expose all of this in the in the Warren Commission re and the Warren Commission dissent in her book. So you can just see that there's a logical there. When I was a criminal defense lawyer, basically with with high pro high profile murder cases, I always looked at motive. And Dorothy had all this information and they had to silence her. And in my books, I proved exactly what happened because three years later, they did a, a new analysis of her bodily fluids and they found three barbiturates, secanol, phenobarbital, and, um, and tulanol in her system. And that there was powder on the glass that she, she last drank, showing that they had somebody had gone ahead, including this uh, confidant of her, it looks like, and, uh, and put those barbiturates in a vodka and tonic and that's what killed her so when people ask me about what do i believe happened here well the proof is they killed her they killed her they killed uh dorothy kilgallen so that she could not expose what happened and especially the dissension at the warren commission what i found with my research is that senator cooper had had, uh, had and senator richard russell of georgia there was an executive meeting on September 18, 1964, with all of the members. And Ru Richard Russell and Cooper forced a final executive session of the Warren Commission. The main agenda was to prepare, was to prepare, prepare a dissent and refuse to sign the commission report unless the dissent was included. What did the dissent say? They did not believe in the silver bullet theory. They did not believe that Oswald acted alone. And in that meeting, they were promised that would be in the dissent. We don't have the time to go through all that. It's in the fighting for justice. But basically, Mark, if, I, if I may just uh, pick up a, a quick thought with you with you on this. So uh, let's say, I mean, we, we accept this is a government led cover up of the truth, preventing mm -hmm. us from finding out what really happened to JFK and, and Dorothy uh, as well. Obviously, since that period in time, the, you know, the USA has gone through various uh, regime changes, you know, Democrat, Republican, new government, new people. What has prevented people from over that time from exposing the truth? I mean, obviously, I think to keep a lid on this, this is going to have to require collusion right through the government to the present day, is it not? Well, you have to go back and think about the, the Warren Commission report. I don't know if you're a young man, so you may not remember. But when JFK was dead, was killed and the Warren Commission came out, everybody believed it. They bought Oswald alone for sure. So through the years with all the different regimes and everything else, it was never even touched. It was just, it was the gospel, you see. And so it's amazing to me. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world for sure. and Not the best researcher in the world. I missed this. Everybody's missed it. There's going to be some conferences coming up next week on the JFK assassination. I guarantee there'll be nothing in there. There have been books written by the thousands about the JFK assassination. Dorothy Kilgallen is never even mentioned in them. She, she died and she kind of the truth died with her, Stephen. And so you may ask what if that dissent would have been in there, what would have happened? OK, they would have gone ahead and investigated other possibilities. They didn't investigate the CIA. They didn't investigate the Russians, the Cubans, 
the mafia, everything else. It just stopped everything in its track, and that's it tracks, and that's the tragedy of this. Now I've begun to expose this, and it's 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 just shocking to people that all this wasn't you know exposed. Some of it's starting to be exposed other places, but mostly it's through me, through Dorothy, through Morris Wolf, and all of that. And and that's why I'm so frustrated that for 60 years that damn Oswald alone conclusion has has just you know perpetuated and and it there was never any other chance as Morris Wolf told me uh, of of any other conclusion that the Warren Commission was going to do and that's the tragedy of all this. Well, this is a, a great time to remind people we've got five minutes left on YouTube and then we move over to Locals uh, for the next interview. So make sure you head over there, uh, sign up for Locals. It's free and you can watch the uh, the rest rest of the show over there. Um, Mark, I suppose as well, people would wonder, um, obviously, the government takes steps uh, in, in your version of uh, events to eliminate people who are getting too close to the truth on this now but it does seem we live in an age where everybody's got a book on jfk everyone's got a theory and they they seem to be able to put forward the most accusatory allegations towards government and people with very little state pushback and i'm just wondering in in your mind as the current united states government got no idea of the truth as so much time gone or would this require collusion from them today well, I, I don't think I think they're brain deaf about this. You know, they, they don't know really what happened here because nobody there's I know you're talking about all the assassination books and I've written six of them. I never <laughs> knew anything about this either. Uh, I missed it. But uh, I don't there's never been an assassination book written by like fighting for justice because these are eyewitness accounts by Dorothy Kilgallen and Morris Wolf and John Sherman Cooper and Senator Richard Russell inside the Warren Commission. Nobody's ever gotten in there before. So I would challenge those listeners of yours and those uh, viewers of yours to, to take a look at this material. It, some of it's up on my website, markshawbooks.com, or take a look at this book, buy one at a library, or, or rent one at a library, or get one at a library, whatever, and just take a look. Because yes, I, I, I think it's really an uphill battle. I'm gonna ask uh, one of the House subcommittees to reopen the JFK assassination based on my research. Now, with everything going on in the world, that's an uphill battle, but I'm, I'm not going to stop until I at least try to do something like this, because we need it. This, this is history. This is history, all of this. And this is the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Dorothy Kilnallen did not get the justice she deserved. Marilyn Monroe didn't either. And JFK for sure didn't, because there was no thorough investigation of his death. It was fixed, just like the Warren Commission fixed the Oswald alone uh, conclusion. That would be amazing if you did manage to get this this reopened. I, I realise that this is probably a thankless task in the four minutes or so we've, we've got left. But we, we mentioned O.J. Simpson earlier, and I suppose this was the first real example of like the, the celebrity trial where everybody was invested in it and has made perhaps a source of entertainment, strangely. And everyone kind of made the assumption and thought that the guilty verdict was tacked on, that there was no way this man would be found innocent. And obviously mm -hmm. the, the rest is history. So, I mean, I, I suppose, how, how can something like that happen in terms of justice? Well, you, you may be interested in this. I have the best sources in the world. Uh, people come to me with things and, and give me all this information. I don't know why, but with regard to OJ Simpson, when I was a criminal defense lawyer, I tried cases, a case with uh, Effley Bailey, the famous uh, U.S. attorney, who was O.J. Simpson's attorney. And when I tried that case with uh, 
with Bailey and afterwards, he let me know that there was no question that O.J. Simpson uh, was a murderer. And I've, I've, uh, I've provided that information to people. But, you know, they, they really, I, an awful lot of people don't believe that he, he was guilty. And, they, and, and that was the verdict. And so they believe that. And there's never been enough inside information. F.B. Bailey's dead. And so, you know, you don't have the corroboration that you can have when somebody like Morris Wolf comes forward here because he was right there as to what happened. And I've never been able to find anybody uh, at the Simpson case. We go talk about Kobe, Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant was a rapist. I was right there at his trial. He should have gone to prison. Uh, Mike Tyson should not been, have been convicted of uh, rape. There was no evidence against him. I was right there in the front row for his trial. These are historical events that have been stort, distorted down through the years, capped off by what we're talking about here, the JFK assassination. Uh, people can get in touch with me at markshawbooks.com or at markshaw, uh, excuse me, uh, Mark, uh, mshawin at yahoo.com or markshawbooks. This is not about selling books. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just fine with that. But it's all about uh, my exposing my contributions to history. And now you guys are a part of this because this has never been exposed before. And it's important that, that we've talked about. It. And I thank you for doing that, Stephen. It's my pleasure. It's been a wonderfully you know, informative conversation. I mean, I suppose, do you, do you think we'll ever truly get the definitive answers on JFK? Dorothy had it right. Motive, Carlos Marcello, you know, no question about that, that she had it right. People can pick and do whatever they want. Go look at my presentations up on YouTube for all of the books and with Dorothy and all of that. But she had it right, again, because it's a firsthand account and Morris Wolf has it right that way. So we need to be careful. I'll tell you, not one time in my books do I ever use the C word. C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A. <laughs> okay. C Y or S Y, right? Plot to kill the president because here's what happened happens when you use the C word, it just lumps everything in there, you know, all these crazy conspiracy theories and everything else like that, and that's why I will tell you that my research and Dorothy Kilgallen's research is not in any of those books because they can't go ahead and and uh, and convince people or stand up and say this is the truth if you don't include her research especially in, 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 their, in their evidence that they have. But they can't do that, you see, because everything goes against, uh, against that because of what Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, what she concluded and her research. That's why she's the most credible researcher uh, with, the, with the JFK, JFK, JFK assassination that ever lived. Talking of Oswald as, as well, I mean, do, do you, is it your view that it just it couldn't possibly have been done by, you know, carried out by one man in the way described or, you know, you accept that it, 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 one man could have been responsible for that, but you firmly believe somebody else was involved as well. I mean, do you think it's an impossibility that Oswald did that on his own? Well, Dorothy Kilgallen never focused on Oswald. She thought it was a dead end. She focused on uh, Jack Ruby. OK, and there's so much more evidence about that. But here's probably the three truest words. Let me. I think it's three words, okay, that ever were spoken about the JFK assassination, and they were by Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm a patsy. He was used by other people, and there's no way in hell that he could ever have committed this crime alone. It, it's, so, it's so crazy for anybody to believe that, 
But I'm telling you what, uh, I just did an interview at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, and I went over all this. I looked at some of the comp. There's about 30,000 views of it in the last three days. And down below, they have the comments. Uh, first of all, they talk about the, the hat that I wore, which they don't like. Second, they say that I need a haircut. And third, <laughs> they say, this guy's full of beans. It was Oswald alone. So you're never going to change those people's uh, opinion. But I'm a patsy. That's exactly what he was. Well, what is the significance of the hat, by the way? Is there something on there I should be aware of? Not this whale? hat. I'd have to get up and show you my uh, my uh, fedora that I wore for that particular uh, occasion. I can do it if you want me to, but uh, you want to see it? Uh, why not? Why not? Let's see the Just fedora. A Hold on. I think this this might be a, an Atwood Unleashed first uh, a guest going to get a hat to display for us. Well, there it is. What do you think? Huh? Pretty damn <laughs> nice. Pretty stylish. But see, I like my it. hair sticks out so much. That's why they always say... Get a new corduroy sport coat, sport coat, Mark, and get a haircut, and we hate the hat. How can we believe anybody who wears a hat indoors? I, I think I bought a similar hat last time I, I visited Mexico. Yeah, but you, you do rock that rather well, Mark. Thank you. thank you. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. Maybe you can just remind people the name of, of your book and where they can find it. Well, we got Fighting for Justice, The Reporter Who Do Too Much, and Collateral Damage, and MarkShawBooks.com, and MShawIn at... Uh, yahoo.com and i'd love to hear from people and you guys are the best there thanks wonderful mark thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure deal take care thank you uh jason maybe you can just start with uh, letting us know uh, what you do what keeps you busy uh, what keeps me busy is i'm a talk radio host based in seattle i do a lot of television work on uh fox news and some local uh work but also of course i'm the author of a new book called what's killing america inside the radical left's tragic destruction of our cities. So I, I would say I'm center-left politically. I'm just kind of clinging on there, but I'm very anti-far-left. I'm very anti-woke, I think it would be termed. I spend, I spend a vast majority of my time probably left-bashing from inside the house, I think. So I, I don't know. I mean, the situation may be different in the UK as it is to America, but you think th this ideology is so like uh, insidious now that it's, it's destroying whole communities, essentially. I, I do. I think there's a lot of similarities. Just the underlying ideology between what's going on in the United Kingdom and the United States are very, very similar. Obviously, it's around slightly different issues and institutions, but the underlying ideology of oppressor versus oppressed is still very much there. This obsession with identity politics where mm. you are judged uh, positively or negatively on the basis of skin color or gender identity or whatever it happens to be it, it sort of functions around this power structure dynamic that they claim is there and so looking at the world and institutions and policies and legislation through a social justice lens creates a pretty crummy situation for people who live in the cities where these people are in charge. And I think we've seen in Democrat-run cities in the United States, and the book is actually out in uh, the United Kingdom as well, uh, I think you guys are dealing with similar issues with politicians who are viewing things through that lens. You're just seeing the, the quality of life start to deteriorate in pretty significant ways, and the data backs that up. 
What would you, I mean, would you say as well, I mean, a lot of these beliefs and these, um, you know, this fixation with identity politics and, and fringe kind of issues and the obsession with perhaps race and gender. I've heard these kind of things described as perhaps, you know, luxury beliefs uh, in the West. So it seems like thing, I mean, there are still issues, there are still things to iron out in terms of equality and things like that. But it seems like in terms of history, we're doing pretty well at this moment in time. It seems like that, you know, if we, you know, the, plot a graph racism's re you know reducing all the time misogyny women's rights increasing things like that are, are we just have we got nothing else to do are we all just so bored we're getting deranged by like pep ideological problems yeah i mean there's certainly an element of that right i mean when you talk to some people and you realize what their concern is there, there's a story locally in seattle that i'm working on about fair enforcement on transit and they say it's disproportionately impacting people of color because they're getting too many tickets. Well, that's your biggest complaint. Disproportionality arguments are incredibly lazy and frankly, they're just ignorant. But if that's your biggest complaint, generally speaking, that means things are going in the right direction. I mean, you've got people who are complaining about helmet laws for the exact same purpose. They are looking for reasons to complain about racism that doesn't quite exist instead of sitting back and celebrating the fact that we've come so incredibly far. You know, are there instances of racism or sexism or homophobia, whatever? Yeah, of course. I think the world right now is seeing a whole lot of instances of anti-Semitism, but it doesn't mean that as a society, as a government, that we have institutionalized these isms to the point where they have to be dismantled and then rebuilt. It is a claim that is made by folks who want to shame the people who are, you know, they, they have compassion, they're looking at things through uh, a, a lens of good faith, and they're being taken advantage of. I think that's how you can explain away the BLM movement in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with BLM, because uh, obviously they, that really came to the, you know, its highest prominence after the murder of George Floyd, which, I mean, it was very taboo and unpopular at the time to kind of point out to people that there is no good reason to believe racism played any part in that incident. But we had people in the UK taking the knee for a man that was killed by police in America uh, for, you know, in a way that probably wasn't related to racism. So, I mean, has America become utterly deranged on the topic of race? And can we link this back into perhaps historical injustices? Is there a kind of overcorrection mentality at play here for perhaps for guilt about slavery and things like this? Yes, that's an underlying issue, I think, at least from the activist perspective, and that's what they're trying to instill in people, the ones at least who aren't complete grifters, but the ones who are as well are doing that. I think it's a narcissism problem, honestly. <laughs> I think we have a narcissism problem where you've got a, young, a, a lot of younger folks who are looking for a cause to take on. And you know, to an earlier point, there have certainly been historical injustices no one claims otherwise. And those were parts of some meaningful fights, right? The whole civil rights movement that brought a lot of meaning to individual people's lives because they were fighting for something that was just, that was moral. And now they're kind of wanting to do that because they're living lives that maybe feel to them to be empty. I think a lot of that has to do probably with going away from, from religion, just in a general sense or spirituality. And they're filling that void with these crazy views. I think on race and gender, we have seen this just get completely out of control. And I wouldn't mind if it wasn't impacting other people's lives. Look, if you want to be miserable 24-7 and you want to hold these views that you, okay, fine, I, it doesn't bother me. 
until it bothers me, until it impacts my life directly. And what you've seen on the ground in the United States is a surge of crime, very specific kinds of crime tied directly to policies that were pursued and then implemented by these people who are radicals. And I'm glad you, you know you point out you're a sort of center left, center right, center left. Those are the folks who really generally are in control of the voting population that puts people into positions of power. And it's important for them not to get caught up in any of these movements and to be taken advantage of. But when you have control of the language and the culture, which the far left has in this country, and I think to an extent in the United Kingdom, you start to see them manipulating the conversation so that you do think that maybe you are in fact aligned with Black Lives Matter, when if you told them directly, well, this is what they actually believe, here's what they're doing, you would start to see people pushing back. And that's why BLM as a movement is over. I mean, you still have the underlying activists out there, but BLM as a movement is done because it's been exposed as extremists and scam grifters. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are instances in the UK of um, football games, or I suppose you'd say soccer, of uh, fans booing when their players took the knee. And it was very clear to me and anyone paying attention that these fans were just booing the ideology and they wanted this kind of political movement out of their beloved sport. And this was often misrepresented in the media as uh, an admission of racism from these fans, as if they were just openly advocating for fewer rights for black people. And so I, I well, suppose it's the scam. Yes, That's so, the scam, right? I mean, th this whole idea that if you don't agree that you are a racist, it's because you're a racist and you don't want to admit it. Pay me $10,000, I'll bring a consultant over to you and we'll tell you about how you're a racist until you're ready to admit it. It's very Kafkaesque, isn't it? Um, I suppose, uh, just picking up on something you said earlier, I suppose this is where I, I, I tend to uh, find myself politically homeless in a sense, because obviously with me being against this ideologically anti-woke, if you want to call it that, on the left, I often find common cause with religious conservatives on the right, up until the point they suggest a resurgence of religion or spirituality to kind of fill the void or uh, you know the you know combat this this woke woke ideology. As someone who's kind of like a godless secularist, I, I kind of view religion when it's in full power as not a particular uh, force for good. So do you really do you genuinely believe that people coming to God or a resurgence of religion might help this issue more than it damage it? Well, I definitely don't think it would damage the issue. I, I think th there's a difference between whether or not something uh, can stop something or cause something, right? So I think that people going away from religion in a general sense, even just spirituality, thinking of something bigger than themselves has created the narcissism that we're dealing with that then has led to what's happening on the ground politically. I think obviously, you know, I, I, I get why some folks are, um, uncomfortable with religious institutions. I, I think that that has, that people have some really fair complaints or criticisms, but the general belief of something bigger than yourself so that you're not thinking constantly about how you're gonna serve yourself instead serving your community, I think does help things. W will it completely change the culture? No, I, I think there are a lot of things at play I think the impact of social media, for example, plays into the narcissism problem that we have as well. I just think if we can think a little bit less about ourselves and more about others and more about, you know, a higher being that we want to sort of also try to please by pleasing others, we would just be in a better position. 
Okay. Um, I suppose then as well, when you talk about democratic-run cities in, in the States and how how some of their policies have had dis disastrous outcomes and various uh, cities are considered far more woke than, than others. Perhaps, I mean, Portland's a great example. And we saw uh, uh, some very strange scenes over, there over the last few years. You know, almost, um, well, uh, I forgot the name of what they call them, but the kind of exclusion zones that they set up, little miniature communist experiments playing out in in portland and i just want to get your uh opinion on why why wasn't the law enforced uh, there in the direction of these people who are kind of occupying parts of the city why were they just allowed to do that it's very confusing observing from across the pond yeah and it happened a little bit in portland that was actually happening here in seattle which is seattle of course yeah. <laughs> the people know me because i was covering that um in a pretty significant way for tucker carlson the, the, the reason why it happened is you had a bunch of terrified progressive politicians mixed in with politicians who are very radical, who both did not want to upset the activist crowd who was responsible for what ended up happening and others who agreed 100% with what was happening. They truly believed that they were fighting some kind of institutionalized racism within the Seattle Police Department and with the uh, Portland Police Bureau. So they had political backing. It was at a time when if you said anything critical of BLM, you were immediately deemed a racist. And at the same time, to complicate matters, you had President Trump at the time coming out and speaking forcefully against a lot of the writing that was taking place and some of the dangerous activism that was happening. And so you had these progressive politicians locally who didn't want to be seen as aligned with Donald Trump. So they wanted to be seen as aligned with the activist group that they thought posed a threat to their future in politics or could be used to stay in politics in the future. And it ended up spiraling out of control. It was, it was just from my perspective as someone who was actually covering it and was there and I was there after dark. I didn't go back into a hotel room like some of the national correspondents who came out to cover this. Like you knew immediately it was going to be a disaster. You knew people were going to die because there were vi there was violence every single day. And ultimately it led to the murders of two black boys all in the name of Black Lives Matter. You had an attempted arson, you had vandalism all over the place. You had a, a deaf girl, a deaf woman, who was living in one of the tents inside the occupied zone who nearly was raped by someone. So understand this was never the, the jovial place that people wanted to pretend. They wanted it to be that because they didn't want to have, a, they didn't want to have be any bad PR and be blamed for the fact that they removed the police department from the precinct. It, it was just embarrassing. And, you know, I, I still, to this day, I deal with people who think I was making up most of my stories. It's like, I'm playing video of what it is I'm talking about. It seems I'm, I'm not very good at CGI, I promise you. This is actually <laughs> happening. And, you know, it just spirals. Um, and I write a lot about that in What's Killing America. You uh, we we mentioned Do Donald Trump just just moments ago. So I I mean this is a the, the Trump phenomenon is is absolutely fascinating to me. And it seemed to me quite clear that he was elected in no small part based on people just being fed up with a sort of politically correct finger wagging being imposed and imposed on them and you know in culture society the workplace they, that definitely played into it how the left had behaved for the, for the longest time. Uh, he obviously left office in in a cloud of disgrace. 
refused to accept the election result, as we know. Uh, and I usually wouldn't be talking about him except for the fact that there's a good chance that he may end up backing the White House, or at least that's what I'm I'm told. Where are you on this Trump might be backing the White House? Uh, yeah, I mean, the polling, the, the polling indicates very strongly that if the election were held today, yes, based upon our electoral college system, uh, he would be back in the White House. And I think that is a combination of a couple things. Number one, there's still that significant unease with some of the radical positions on the left. But ultimately, it's about the fact that people remember what their lives were like under Trump pre-COVID versus right now under Joe Biden. And just economically speaking, there's zero doubt people were better off financially four years ago, five years ago, six years ago than they are right now. And it's in large part because of inflation. It's because of the spending. And when you've got a president who's 112 years old talking about Bidenomics, is that, that's his signature accomplishment. Well, you're branding your name around the one issue that everyone is upset with. So it's just not a very good you know, PR strategy. And you, know, you throw in his age and how he acts his age it gets a lot of people really, really uncomfortable. I, I did a panel the other day with a Democrat the congresswoman who was pointing out, well, you know, Donald Trump isn't uh, that much younger than Joe Biden. Correct, but he doesn't act it. You, you can't compare the energy level of a Donald Trump to a Joe Biden, regardless of how you feel about any one of them politically and the content that they're, they're, they're speaking. One clearly seems like he's unwell and won't survive a second term. And people are very, very curious about that uh, and concerned about that, including Democrats. So, I mean, Trump was known for being anti-woke. I keep using this word and then he'd push back on political correctness. He'd say exactly what he thought. And obviously his fan base loved that as well. I just wanted to get your opinion on whether or not he is an asset in this fight or whether he kind of produces more heat than light, to use a, an old phrase? Do you think he's yeah. a liability on this front? Well, it kind of depends. Not to get too much in the weeds, but down ticket, he will hurt, I think, Republicans, but he will not be hurt himself because I think there are enough people who can justify the, the, the folks who are uncomfortable with his personality. And yeah, yeah he's, he's crass. There's no doubt about it. He's, he's a brash guy. That's his personality. And that's always been his personality. People who don't like that will hold their nose and vote for him because they at least want to get back economically to where they were. But they'll say, I'm not going to vote for other Republicans. They're essentially judging other Republican candidates by their distrust or disgust with Donald Trump's personality. I think that that will hurt. When you have two other candidates who are very strong who are running in both Nikki Haley as well as Ron DeSantis, they would be Joe Biden, I think that they don't pose a liability to anyone down ticket, specifically just assuming that we have quality candidates that are on the ballots. I think when you look at the polling, frankly, both Trump and Biden are considered weak. They just are. Trump is least weak uh, when you're comparing it to, to Joe Biden, but they're both weak. And when you have just a generic Democrat going up against Donald Trump, Donald Trump loses. When you have a generic going up against DeSantis or Haley, Haley and DeSantis will win or it's it's basically neck and neck. And so Democrats have to figure that out. Uh, personally, I hope they don't because I don't want to see a Democrat in the White House. Certainly none of the 
the possible names that uh, would step up and fill that void if, if Joe Biden were to drop out for some reason. What do you think will bring about the end of this this kind of woke movement? I suppose, in a way, could it possibly be the argument about gender? Because it feels like the race thing, and not a lot of people want to throw their heart in the ring. It's a thankless, thankless argument to be having. It's, it can be somewhat esoteric. A lot of people don't really know the particulars and, and stats about crime and law and order and things like that. Whereas everybody instinctively knows the difference between a man and a woman and what makes a man a man and a woman a woman and it seems like this idea of uh, self id and gender ideology being thrust upon society at large may just be the thing that turns the ordinary person around to stand up and say no thank you to this movement now on, on that particular issue they are saying no thank you the, the problem is the folks on the radical side of this issue have control of the culture and they have pretty much just pushed forward with their agenda and made institutional changes that are not going to be easy to to undo. Uh, I had an exclusive story this week, the Port of Seattle, which operates our airport, they're putting tampon dispensers in all the men's bathrooms. And they started putting them in the men's bathrooms before the women's bathrooms, right? Now, why, how, how does that happen? Well, they're just doing it. They, they didn't do a poll, obviously. They're not listening to, to the everyday person who says, wait, that doesn't really make sense. And the same is true when it comes to sports, where you've got schools just unilaterally deciding, yeah, we're going to allow a biological boy who identifies as a transgender girl compete with biological girls. They're just doing it. And when you just do it, because you happen to be right now in a position of power, it's very hard to undo. You get some pushback, right? You get usually some political consequences, depending on you know the time that you get to vote. But by doing that up front and just you know changing language uh, and having it get accepted by the media, it, it's not easy to to walk back. And we're seeing that right now as it relates to the crime crisis. So you had a whole bunch of different radical policies and laws go on the books basically telling folks that the criminals are the victims, not the actual victims. And so you created this culture of lawlessness. You defunded the police, you stopped putting people in jail. And of course, crime exploded all across the areas that did this, and then it started to spread. Well, you've got councils and mayors who walked a lot of those policies back in some cities and have acknowledged that it didn't work. But the stats aren't necessarily follow, following the same path. They're not coming back to where they were. Slowly, it's starting to go in that direction for the most part, but not quickly because you change the culture. You change the culture around crimes and how you treat police and how you look at the criminal justice system. And those are, pro it's like going on a diet. You, you can work really, really hard for three, four months. You lose two or three pounds, but then you go to Vegas for a weekend and you gain seven. So that's kind of what we're doing here. It took a really long time to get to a place where we were con generally content with the low numbers, uh, the low stats as it relates particularly to violent crime. And then bam, just like that, over the course of a year, you started to see it skyrocket and then skyrocket again. Yeah, I mean, I'm very envious of the the, the First Amendment in America. I just think it's the gold standard where freedom of expression is concerned. It's something that's sorely needed in in the UK. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, I mean, we we're a culture and a society where we we may get a visit from the police or be required to come down to a police station, depending on what we've tweeted online or posted on our Facebook. We just had an example of it this week. Actually, a woman in the northwest of the country had been called in to be interviewed by the police and cautioned because she'd said that men are aren't women 
on on social media in most cases not even to anyone individually just a general opinion and i just wanted to get your view on what you think when you see that kind of thing coming over from the uk where people are being arrested and, and are sometimes convicted for the things they write on social media well, it certainly terrifies me, someone who goes to the United Kingdom several times a year. Uh, I'm always in the back of my mind wondering if I'm going to get in trouble myself. Probably not as an American, but look, it's terrifying that people live in places where they can't freely express themselves. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences with your expression, but it should mean that the government isn't going to provide those consequences with that expression. And it, it's happening because the people in power hold certain views. And again, that's why I wrote What's Killing America, and I'm glad that it's available to folks in the United Kingdom, because it's not just something. The underlying issues, even though the book is obviously focused on the United States, really tackle some of the same underlying issues in the United Kingdom. When it comes to censorship, I was given this quote back in like 2004 um, by, by someone who I consider a, a mentor, and he said, imagine the power to censor in the hands of your worst enemy. So right now, folks on the right, folks who are center right, folks who are really even center left and reasonable on some of these issues, they're experiencing what that means. Because this could very easily be turned completely around where we're gonna start punishing folks who are saying that gender is fluid. You get to hold that position, I don't care if you hold that position, but if you were being punished from a government standpoint, if the cops are calling you in because you said, no, I identify as a woman, even though I'm bi biologically male, well, the folks right now who are celebrating the takedown of conservative speech would be up in arms, rightly so. So you can't quite have it both ways. We're either going to allow this kind of expression and you can fight the expression with your own expression, or you can lean into this sort of authoritarian um, posture that is ultimately going to bite you at some point. It might not happen right now, it might not happen next year, but it's eventually going to happen. Is there not a sense as well? I mean, does it not depress you sometimes that we're all down in the weeds fighting over who gets to wear a dress and, uh, you know, identity-based squabbles, that there are real serious issues in society that need addressing and we're not getting to them? Well, I, I think this has become a real issue. You, you mm. can wear your dress if you want. That's not really what's at stake here, and no one's debating that. It's how you're impacting other people. And when it comes specifically to kids, when it comes to young girls who fought, gener you know, yeah, generations before them fighting for equality, only now to lose scholarships and opportunities to biological men who have an innate advantage on, the, you know, on the field. It, that's just patently unfair. And I think that that's a serious issue that needs to be grappled with. And of course, the legal implications associated with no longer accepting that there are differences between men and women, that you can just decide that you hold a different gender. And by the way, you can decide multiple times throughout the day. And if you don't use the proper pronoun, all of a sudden you could lose your job or you could be sued for discrimination. I think that those that has become, unfortunately, a really significant issue. Yeah. Okay, Jason. Well, it's been it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. I'm definitely going to read your book, uh, and I, I have plenty of friends in America. And I try to get over there as often as I can. So I, it's kind of a lot of these issues are close to my my heart as well. Uh, so thank you uh, for coming on and speaking. Just maybe you can just give our guest, uh, listeners a reminder where they can find your book. Yeah. So you can find it um, Amazon.com or Amazon.uk, and you can find it at uh, a lot of actually your bookstores in the United Kingdom online. Um, probably better than going into the brick and mortar at this point, but uh, it's called What's Killing America. 
inside the radical left's tragic destruction of our cities. And it makes an amazing Christmas and Hanukkah gift. <laughs> Jason, great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Fascinating topic. That's uh, added onto my reading list for sure. I'm just going to bring in our next guest. John, welcome back. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, apologies for before I got jumped the gun on that one. I was too eager to speak to you and I brought you in early. But um, maybe you can just let people know uh, what it is you do. Well, I'm a writer, an anarchist writer. I, my books have to do with, uh, I think, a little bit more basic issues than the, <laughs> the last guest who, uh, and not to put words in your mouth, but all this woke, anti-woke, what the hell is he talking about? Talk about trivia. You know, that's just crazy. You know, it's, uh, it's, he has a book called What's Killing America. How yeah. about What's Killing the Planet? What's Killing the Planet? Civilization is collapsing. Everybody knows that. The civilizations have come and gone, but now there's really only one. You know, it's based on capital and technology, different cultures, of course, but uh, this is a global thing. <clears throat> Civilization is everywhere. There's there's virtually nobody outside of it. There's a few indigenous people, but that's just about gone. And yet, uh, you know, there's all this stuff. Uh, how, you know, the, the metaphor, the elephant in the room, let's talk about a tiny part of the elephant or maybe not talk about it at all. Its existence uh, goes unrecognized. And like these people, you know, this, and then I could go on and on with this guy, this loathsome guy you just had on, but uh, what is what is important? What is, you know, does it not notice? I mean, look, every successive president, whether it's a loathsome guy like Trump or whoever it is, a hack like Biden or whatever, things get worse, which every successive president, things get worse. It doesn't matter whether they're conservative or liberal because the problems are way deeper than that. They're much more basic. And so I just, it's so frustrating to see, and you know, billions of dollars are spent on this kind of trivializing discourse, which is not really a discourse. Okay, so a few few things to pick up there, uh, John. So, so really looking forward to talking about this with an anarchist for sure. This is a, a rarity, so this is great. But you've mentioned there that things seem to get worse with every subsequent uh, president. Uh, I mean, compared to when, I suppose would be the question. Uh, compared to forever, <laughs> because civilization running its course is more and more, for one thing, one basic thing, industrialization. Everybody knows that global warming is a function of industrialization. How much industry is there? It's an exact measure of, of uh, global warming and pollution and all the rest of it. Everybody, that's not a secret. You can notice that in the newspaper if you're paying attention. Everybody knows it. So uh, doesn't that kind of suggest that you want to do something about that? But sure, virtually so nobody is. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree uh, to a sad So I, I would class myself as an environmentalist to an extent. It's one of the reasons I, I don't eat animals. I, I, the only, I suppose I'm slightly skeptical about whether or not humans can uh, reverse this at this point, whether we've crossed over the line and it's, it's far too late. Do you think we have any hope uh, in that regard? Well, there's lots of grounds to be skeptical, that's for sure. And I, I have no crystal ball. I don't know if, if all this will be challenged or not. Maybe not. 
maybe people just keep on taking more and more drugs of one kind or another, or, or who knows, you know, there'll be more people breaking down, but it, as the physical environment collapses, I mean, all these things are, are very, very clear. There's no secret about what's going on, but yeah, I don't know if anything's going to happen. Part of it is the problem of uh, access. You know, it's not, I'm not a respectable thinker. My books don't have, I have a small publisher, but it's, you know, I don't get to be on uh, media much. Uh, and now, of course, public speaking, I've spoken in a lot of countries around the world, but it's all on Zoom, like we're doing here right now. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, condemning it. It's, it's the only game in town pretty much now. So you take advantage of it if you can to try to contribute to the dialogue and maybe ask deeper questions. What's the solution then to a, you know this really harmful capitalist system we we live in? Is it is it a better regulated system? Is it a complete alternative? Do you have a, an idea of what you'd like to see? Well, I think it's going to have to be something fundamental, or we're still on this suicidal path, this suicidal course. You know, it gets down to some fundamental stuff like domestication. You know, ten thousand years ago, the first you know domesticating plants and animals. I mean, that's that's where it really kicks in. That's where civilization is born and grows, becomes uh, virulent from that foundation. So that's that's a tall order. You know, how do you rewild or de-domesticate or decolonize? It's all, you know, every part of it goes forward together. It's a, it's a coherent, totalizing thing. It's not just, you can't just peel off one part of it and expect you're going to change anything basic. Yeah, I suppose I, just as a like um, on the opposite side of the coin here for this, uh, people like Stephen Pinker. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of his work, but he he's he sold a lot of books, basically arguing that you know progression has increased in certain so many metrics for humans over the years. You know, well-being, access to healthcare, uh, individual liberties, rights, uh, life expectancy, all kinds of uh, of things. And how do you tally that up with your kind of uh, uh, not to be pe too pessimistic, but it seems almost like a doomsday prediction? Well, it's it's kind of embarrassing for him, I'd say, because he does this cherry picking, which is really not very honest writing or thinking. Uh, well, I guess the bottom line is life expectancy, longevity. It's actually going down now. That used to be a very baseline argument against my kind of thinking. Well, people live longer. You no, know, the case closed. I mean, everything's getting better. Well, not so, not <laughs> hardly. In this COVID pandemic, there are going to be more pandemics. People are less healthy, less robust. I mean, I mean, count the ways. The he would he tries to say things are way less violent, but he does that by a strange uh, overlooking of a lot of things that uh, are subject to violence. Uh, maybe, first of all, the species extinction, the great extinction that's galloping forward. I mean, go on and on. It's a really, I would be, uh, I would be ashamed to put out stuff like that. It's just sheer propaganda. You have a right to, you have a right to uphold the, uh, Civilization and its glories. Good luck with that. I mean, <laughs> really, the news is quite the opposite. And I think everybody knows that. No one, how many people can you actually find who, no, no, everything's fine. It's just getting nicer and healthier all the time. Incredible. What planet somebody uh, argues that? It's hard to believe. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, as well as a, a, a kind of um, pushback to, to that idea that we're, you know, we, we're healthier and we're living longer is this idea of mental health now. Now, is it in your view that human beings, their, their mental health is deteriorating uh, more so than in the past because of the system we find ourselves in? Is it possible we've just become much better at recognizing mental health, talking about it openly? It's less of a stigma now, less taboo, there's more support. I think uh, there's there's something to that, you know. For example, looking at autism, certain things weren't measured or looked at, uh, maybe as much as they should have been. But that's not the main part of it. That is not the main part of it. Take for example, alienation in society that afflicts so many people. And I think in the UK as well as the US and lots of other places too. I'm sure loneliness and isolation epidemic is treated. It's referred to commonly now as a public health emergency. The technology was supposed to connect everybody. It's exactly the opposite. We're more and more isolated. We have less face-to-face -face contact. We have fewer friends. Pretty much every way you slice it, I mean, the machines connect with each other quite well, but not so much the people. And you know, you can see, especially among the young, I think this is, I know it's true in the US, their mental health is just being shredded by smartphone addiction, to to mention one specific thing, it's a, it's horrible. Suicide rate is going up. I mean, I don't know who's going to really say. I mean, there are there are drugs, new drugs that can keep people alive, uh, and new technologies. For example, through wars, you get most of your limbs blown off and your brain scrambled forever, but you can m maybe be kept alive through all the high tech uh, stuff, but uh, Really? I mean, is that a good measure of anything? I'm not sure. I mean, not that I don't want them to die. I, I don't want them to die. But some of it is artificial. Even the part that people can point to uh, is usually not exactly what is uh, the case. Yeah. I mean, going back to this idea of the the youth being negatively impacted by you know technology smartphones always being online social media i look at these things as some a guy who's nearly touching 40 and 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 have the same views on that but then i sometimes have to check myself and think well there's been a moral panic about every new generation uh, in, in regards to technology i think you know tv was a big thing a while back that was going to bring down civilization uh, and, and I'm just wondering, are we in danger of just catastrophizing the youth in a way that people of a certain age tend to do? Well, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there's there's something of that. But maybe you could look at it as they were right, but we've had to get used to it. We've had to, uh, whether it's the car or TV or whatever, uh, has the same bad effects, but uh, it won. You know, <laughs> so what's the point of... Uh, you know, it's the same thing about going back. Well, you can't go back. There's no going back. Well, really? You want to keep going forward to where everybody is so unhealthy and unhappy and, and uh, you know, the environment is uh, just about dead? I mean, what part of that uh, strikes one as a good idea to keep going forward with more and more? Uh, and, of course, now the high-tech stuff, the chatbots, you know, the AI stuff is – and some of the people that have invented it actually – are wringing their hands and sounding the alarm, but it's probably going to be another one of those things. Well, get over it. Here it is. You know, what are you going to do about it? Unless just, just, you have a radical critique, which does want to get rid of it physically, actually, 
then you're just talking. You're, you're just not, you're not uh, facing up to what, uh, what's going on. So I suppose, I mean, just to keep on this area of uh, area of technology, uh, and you've talked about not having face-to-face interactions, and of course, speaking to people in this way, there is that aspect of sort of psychological presence that's that's missing. But uh, just to give a, a case study from my own life, during lockdown, uh, when we weren't allowed to see each other, I, I managed to arrange poker nights and cinema nights with friends and family via a vr headset which is literally a a, a small tv strapped to my head and i I actually felt like i'd physically spent time with them the way that's constructed i suppose what my question would be i suppose what is wrong with that kind of thing if you can get some value from it why is why is that kind of experience detrimental well no that's fine i mean when people are in lockdown i mean you you want to have some contact with people whether it's you know, technologically mediated, it, it must be in, in a case where, you know, millions of people are dying from COVID, even though some people deny it on the right. But, you know, yeah, I, I wouldn't take it away from anyone. But, you know, it gets down, one thing it gets down to is, where does all this come from? You know, the nice sleek uh, AI, all the computer stuff, it, you know, when you get down to it, it doesn't float down from the heavens, you know. It it depends on mining. It depends on the same old extractivism. Now, now we're going after the remaining rare earths and rare metals like lithium because, and and sea sea floor mining, got to keep doing that. You know, got to keep destroying the planet systematically to have the nice technology, the, the latest technology. Yeah, it doesn't come. Uh, you know, in a nice package, it's had blood on its hands, so to speak, or pollution on its hands, at least. You know, that, but that's never really, almost never mentioned. You know, like the like the take the the cars that are, um, you know, quiet and they they pollute less. But what does it take to build that car? You know, starting from the mining and the smelting and the plastics and everything else, that's a gigantic uh, blow to the environment. Yeah, it pollutes less when it's operating, but you know you, you're not supposed to look at the other part. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose if if we accept the all, all the issues you have with capitalism, and ob- some obviously the the kind of um, pushback to that usually comes in the form of socialism or communism. You yourself define yourself as a, an anarchist. What what does anarchy or anarchism have to to offer in terms of solutions? Well, first of all, I'm not a leftist. The left has failed as much as anything else. I mean, in a, in a way, it never even tried. It never combated industrialism, almost never historically. Factories, fine, let's have more factories. Marx wanted everybody in the factories. You know, that's that's not where I'm at whatsoever. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's about capitalism, sure, but it's much deeper than that. Civilization is a wider, deeper problem of capitalism. You know, if you're just about uh, opposing capitalism, then yeah, you must be some kind of socialist. So you want the state running the industries. Well, that doesn't get you very, very far. Of course, you're not you're not breaking with the dominant uh, disease or you know progression that's uh, so destructive. No, it's 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 about uh, getting somehow it may never happen, but getting away from domestication from the you know the inner logic of domestication is control. Okay, that's that's a basic thing. More and more control, deeper control, down to the nanoparticle control, you know, nanotechnology and so forth. It's the same as it's always been, only it's just 
you know, more rampant or virulent, you might say. And what do we get? What is the result? Is that a good, healthy path? Obviously not. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, would look at technology and say, look how much it's improved the quality of life. Look how much it's made, you know, certain things of uh, almost a te technological advancement, almost emanciated people from certain tasks and roles and manual labor and, and things like that. I mean, w in your perfect view of society, would people have to return to that that kind of thing in order for the civilization to meet the standard you want it to? Well, I'd say that's a fiction. Where has it liberated people? Think there's they're not still on the auto lines or or mining or warehouse work or oh you got to have all that it hasn't you know back from the 50s automation everybody will be free they'll have free time people work more and more now than they ever have couples you know like I probably so in most countries uh, in in a regular two person couple family the guy worked. Uh, the woman, the mother stayed home. Now they're both working more and more. So, you know, that's just that's just fantasy to say that people are liberated. You know, even when you put in all the robotics and stuff, well, who who maintains that? Who builds the robotics? Who moves it around? Who services it? You know what I mean? It's it doesn't it doesn't happen like some god is liberating everybody somehow. No, no, it's that's not the way it's happened. Yeah, so I mean, are there any kind of um, philosophical figureheads you could point to who are who are kind of um, emblematic of this this ideology? People that have inspired you, or people you read that made you think this was the correct uh, you know worldview to take? Well, one person stands out, Jacques Ellul, the French uh, thinker. He wrote uh, in the fifties a book called The Technological Society, that was translated into English in the sixties. And he showed how it works. And and by the way, Ted Kaczynski recently uh, deceased Kaczynski. His man of so-called manifesto was really nothing more than putting Jacques Ellul's uh, rather dense abstract book into vernacular English. And he told me so. He admitted it uh, wasn't his original ideas. And what he's basically saying is. As the technology advances in society, people have less freedom and they have less meaning in their lives. And, uh, you know, that's, I mean, I won't go into that for you, but I mean, I think it's pretty persuasive. Are people more free or do they have more meaning now? Or do they have to confine their freedom to hobbies or some trivial thing like that in, in lieu or consumerism or what have you in lieu of actual freedom? Yeah, I mean, is, is there not some happy middle ground to be found here? Because I, I, I openly think that, for, for instance, having this smartphone supercomputer in your pocket at all times and being constantly connected can have a detrimental effect. I, I've been known to what they call as doom scroll, where you just find yourself captivated by something for far longer, and that's that's come at the cost of perhaps personal interactions or being productive. Is there not just a is a better way of dealing with that? Just kind of engendering this is a problem and you know, giving people the personal responsibility to regulate their time on these devices and look at them as not part of your life and lifestyle, but rather as tools to be accessed sparingly. Well, yeah, that's, it doesn't seem to be working though. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> sadly enough, you know, I've been talking to people that pretty much identify as Luddites, at least in terms of smartphones. 
and every every interaction is the same. My my, my uh, what I get from talking to people and what they get from talking to people it's the same. A smartphone is so such a waste of time. It's just so draining and empty and not the real thing. I'm getting I'm getting less and less and less out of it. And part two, I'm hooked. I'm addicted. I know how lousy it is, but I'm hooked. They'll tell you both things every time. That's, you know, I'm mainly talking to student age people. Uh, you know, people older like me are less prone to that. I'm, I'm, I've never been very attracted to that stuff. I don't have a cell phone. Anyway, yeah, isn't that funny? People will you don't have a cell you. phone at all? No, no, I don't. So do you have a landline at home at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You gotta have some technology, you know. We, we we couldn't have this conversation without it, obviously. And I have a weekly radio show which streams around the world simultaneously. Wonderful technology, you know. It's almost quaint to call it a radio station, um, PWVA, because of the radio signal. I mean, especially my show, which isn't especially local. It's more mm, far flung, you might say. Yeah, it's. Uh, in fact, it's funny. I was arguing with our general manager there were some technical problems and she said, well, people just get it on the radio and they go, the radio, you know, like uh, what, what uh, decade are you in? You know, and, and then feeling, feeling weird because I'm the anti-tech person, but I'm arguing that the technology isn't sufficient for my show. You know, we're all trapped in it. I mean, you know, we're all part of it. It's funny. I mean, in terms of the impact technology's had on, say, art and culture, do we, and it all seems digitized now. It's all like, like streaming music, streaming films. And I'm a bit of an old soul in that regard. I like physical media. I collect vinyl uh, music nice. as well. There's something really nice about having a tactile piece of art in your hand, and it's it takes physical effort to enjoy it uh, as well. It's almost like having a moment. Is this? Is this? Is it? This like streaming uh, everything in your pocket, a million songs, a million books, a million movies in this tiny little device. Is that having a detrimental impact on how we consume art and what we make of it? Well, there's a lot of been written about attention span. You know, it's kind of goes along with that. Uh, attention span, what's that? You know, it's just we're just flipping from one thing or another or scrolling from one thing to another. Yeah, it's and, you know, even worse, I guess, is the chatbot stuff. It writes plays, it can write novels, it can write music. It's not super good at it, but it's getting better every day. They're perfecting it. So where is the artist or the musician? I mean, it's it's incredible, it's scary. You know, the ma machine can do that. And you start to wonder, well, what was the value of that in the first place? If a machine can reproduce it, wow. I mean, where have we gone? I mean, it's just, you know, deepens the, deepens the questioning, unfortunately. It's just, it's scarier than we thought. Is it not a case of a, this sort of AI technology being just another tool? It could be misused. It can also be used for a plethora of really useful tasks that could have, you know, significant uh, impact on how we perceive things, how we create, uh, you know, how quickly we get things done now. Well, I think it's more of a system than a tool. You know, it's it's to say it's a discrete, uh, neutral kind of a tool in the usual sense of the word tool. I don't think that applies all that well. You know, it's it's really uh, it's it involves more than that. You know, when you how do you well how do you 
pick out one tool from another. I mean, it's all it's all interwoven and and part of the bigger system, if you will. I mean, I think that's a way of you know, not that you are, but I mean, there's an ideological use to saying, oh, don't worry about technology. It's just another tool. You know, it's fine. It's just all in how you use it. What if it's not so much? Well, it's how you use it, yes. But what is? What if it's also about the nature of it? You know, what's embedded in it, inherent in it, kind of thing. Then you, then you have another discussion on a deeper level. I think. Yeah, I mean, artificial intelligence seems like the the discussion now in terms of technology, in terms of the ethical implications of it, where it's going to take us. Uh, a lot of people who are very well versed in AI seem unnervingly terrified about that where yeah. this might go and i was just wondering do, do you view ai as a, a potential existential threat a lot of people are very scared about what it may be capable of oh yeah i mean that's part of the whole thrust of it and uh some of these people back in the 90s i think especially were so keen on the internet cyberspace it's so wonderful it's just going to be a utopian deal and i can't think of the most well known of them now but some of them have come forward and saying, I was wrong. That <laughs> that was not the nature of the beast. And now we see how it works, you know, what it is. I mean, it's it's it didn't turn out that way at all. It there were people who wanted it to be that way initially, you know, well, it can be decentralized and so forth. It can be autonomous for people and connecting and so forth and so on. Well, has it worked out that way? You know, why has it gone really opposite to those values or those conditions it's not a coincidence i would say yeah i mean are we and, and you know some of it is some of it i don't think it's the main part of it but some of it is downright uh deliberate you know the tech companies they try to program for addictive qualities and you know some of the big uh high-tech mavens the big ceo types and so forth they don't let their kids Go near it because they know, isn't it? Yeah, isn't that amazing? It kind of gives it away. They go to the Waldorf school or some, you know, pretty much anti-tech uh, outfit, and they don't want their kids trapped and really poisoned by it. And yet they're making millions of dollars doing just that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in terms of humans, in terms of how we've evolved and what 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 our biologies used to or or works best in in the context of, I suppose we've kind of evolved to be. It's part of small knit communities, haven't we, and tribes? And do you think that suddenly being thrust into this global experience now where I can see something happening in real time on the other side of the planet in 4K definition, do you think this is just a, a big issue in terms of how we've evolved for us? Is this, is this going to be helpful for us going forward? Well, I think you hit on possibly the most key point of all you know, before domestication, we lived as hunter-gatherers in small face-to-face -face communities. I don't think the word community has much meaning anymore at all in mass society. You know, there's neighborhoods, there's clubs, uh, well, fewer clubs all the time, as uh, Putnam pointed out in bowling alone, even the bowling leaves are going away. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, there's a certain direction or momentum away from that. It starts to break down with with agriculture, domestication is just another word for farming, for private property, agriculture. And you think, well, how can you possibly condemn agriculture? Well, there's a fundamental shift there away from 
eros and freedom of hunter-gatherer life uh, before organized violence. You know, it's true. And, you know, uh, people were stronger and uh, various things. Uh, then we started down the road of civilization with warfare and temples and, you know, kings and pharaohs and gods and everything, all the rest of it. Uh, yeah, it was not a good development. And that's why we're called primitivists, you know, green anarchy, anarcho-primitivist. It really does draw on the anthropology. Uh, and I, I discovered this quite by accident. My field was history until the 80s. I was doing work, uh, research, more Frankfurt School kind of stuff, social stuff. And I just happened on to some of the literature um, of anthropology and wow, it just changed my whole thinking. I mean, you know, it's the, the problem is very deep and that, you know, the development, the logic of it is, is clearer and what we've had to give up is clearer. And you know, it's still there to some degree. I mean, you know, I put a fire in the stove at night and stare into the flames. Well, we've been doing that for like 3 million years as various human species you know, Homo erectus and so forth uh, over the years. And uh, and it went pretty well, really. It wasn't systematically destroying the environment or overpopulating. It was very stable at a low level. Now we've got 8 billion people, right? So it's not going to happen overnight if we try to, you know, reverse that somehow. Okay, John. Well, it's it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad you've come on to speak to us and, and, and share your worldview. Is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before I let you get back to your day? Oh, uh, well, not really. I'm I'm working on a memoir, but that won't be out till next year. I appreciate it, Stephen. Uh, and by the way, if anybody wants the the radio show is at KWVA Radio dot uh, org. It's college radio, basically, and I, I'm on every Tuesday night, and it's archived on my web. Web page website is johnzerzen.net for the recorded shows. Thanks for the chance to talk, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. Take My care. Pleasure. You too. Bye now. Fascinating guests today, as usual. Nice mix of everything. Hey, Sean. Indeed, we learned so much through these interviews, Stephen, with these guests that Ash finds with all of these esoteric and diverse ranges of knowledge free education slap you not going back to uni <laughs> <laughs> all right my friends i'm gonna go on to our next guest and we will see you next week cheers see you next time have a good one thank you Stephen. bye bye so we're going to the realm of elites who play the justice system. We've got a senior legal analyst and national best-selling author joining us, exploring America's two-tier justice system, explaining how the rich, the famous, and the powerful manipulate the system to escape justice and get away with their vast misdeeds. His book is Untouchable, and some of the powerful figures Mentioned are Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, and Bill Cosby. Ooh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> All right. Without any further ado, let's bring him in. Hey, how's it going, my friend? 
Can you can you hear me okay? Because I cannot hear you. Let's have a let's have a look. Let's get you unmuted, shall we? What is your microphone? What kind of microphone are you using? What kind of? Hey, can you oh, see check, the chat? Check, 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 check. Yeah, you oh, got me now. There we go. There, there we go. go. Just Grin. had to just had to get the settings set for you. Um, <laughs> how are you? Good to see you. I noticed behind you is a book called "Sit Downs with Gangsters." Um, yes. I did a lot of those. So <laughs> I was the chief of the organized crime unit as a prosecutor. So uh, oh, we can talk wow. about real sit downs with real gangsters if you want. What state was that? Oh, was it federal? New York. Yeah, I was a fed in New York and Manhattan. Uh, so New York City mafia. Gangsters. Well, did, yep. did you come up? There's two American gangsters in that book. One's Michael Francis and the other is John Elite. Oh, well, Mike, Michael Francis is somebody I know of. I don't think I've ever met him, but I've heard him on a million podcasts. John A. Light uh, was a witness in a case. I did. We did the case against John Gotti Jr. So I spent a lot, many, many, many hours with John A. Light. Yeah, know him well. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah he came yeah. out to the UK and we did we did a, an event with him here. He's also, all these gangsters have turned into podcasters now. It's like a whole underground uh, universe <laughs> of gangsters turned cooperators turned podcasters. God bless them. <laughs> well, at least they're on the straight and narrow. So what made you want to write this book? So it's actually my second book. Uh, my first book was it, it is called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. It was about our Attorney General, Bill Barr, who was Donald Trump's almost last Attorney General. Um, and uh, I had written that book for my publisher, HarperCollins, and we were all thrilled with it. It did great. And then they said to me, within weeks of it publishing, what do you want to write next? And I said, I don't, I don't really have any ideas. And they said, well, what's okay, what question do you get most, asked most of you at CNN or just through your writing? I said, well, that's easy. Just how the hell does he get away with it? And the he can vary. Uh, most often it's Donald Trump, but also the other folks you mentioned and many others who were lesser known or unknown. And so I said, they said, that's perfect. So that became the book. And what I do in the book is sort of combine my own experience as a prosecutor, which we can talk about. I tell plenty of war stories of things we went through and things I learned as a prosecutor. Most of the stories end up with me screwing something up or getting yelled at by a judge or messing something up, but that's how you learn. Um, along with current events, along with some original reporting, I got some behind the scenes reporting on how some big decisions were made at DOJ about whether to indict Trump in the early days before they ever ended up actually doing it, why they passed on charging Donald Trump on the hush money case, which then right around the time my book came out, the state prosecutor across the street actually charged it. So it became even more sort of newsy and relevant at that point. Well, going back to Bill Barr then, because I've written a few books that feature Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> and um, yep. he's an integral part of the story Yeah, whereby it was Donald Barr. Um, <laughs> there was the conflict of interest with Attorney General Bill Barr in the context um, because Donald Barr allegedly hired Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher, served as his mentor, and wrote a novel about men raping teenage girls. Yeah, so you're. Uh, this is Bill Barr's father. I actually, I don't know all of that's true, but I do know that, I'll take your word for it, but I do know that Bill Barr's father did employ Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher, right, at a private school or something like that? Yep. Yeah, and, and Bill Barr, you know, the Epstein prosecution, the federal Epstein prosecution happened while Barr was there. Um, I, I don't buy into conspiracy theories that Barr had him murdered or anything like that. But I will say Bill Barr really 
failed to take any responsibility for losing Jeffrey. I mean, you can't lose Jeffrey Epstein when he's in prison right there. He's your number one high priority individual. And he got, you know, he died within a week or so of being there. And the fact that that that, that happened is, is still not fully explained to me how BOP Bureau of Prisons, which is part of the Justice Department, could have allowed that to happen. There's a lot of unanswered questions. So how did Epstein get a pass on his first case? Yeah, so they basically had him dead to rights in Florida. State prosecutors, federal prosecutors in Florida. Um, it actually started with the local cops. They started getting complaints. They went and they developed a pretty good case. It lands on the desk of the U.S. attorney for Florida, a guy named Alexander Acosta. And if you recognize that name, it's because years later, he becomes Trump's treasury secretary. Or not, I'm sorry, not treasury. Uh, I think it's, I want to say labor secretary, one of his cabinet members. Um, and that's what thrust this back into the spotlight. But Epstein, they had victims willing to testify. They had him just cooked. And he goes and he hires this mega, I'm not going to say elite, because I think some of these lawyers are actually not very good, but famous big money lawyers, Alan Dershowitz, Kenneth Starr, who's since passed away, um, former prosecutors from that office, just this, what, what you might, what one might colloquially, colloquially, I can't say that word, colloquially call a dream team, although again, I quarrel with how good they actually were, but big, famous, intimidating attorneys. And long story short, the U.S. attorney, Acosta at the time, completely gives the gives the case away, lets Epstein plead to a state-level, uh, low-level crime of prostitution, even though they had him sexually abusing underage girls. He gets a 13-month sentence, but he's allowed to serve weekdays at his lawyer's office um, on quote-unquote work release from like, you know, nine to five. So he barely even serves any time. He gets a complete pass really because, you know, I tried to sort of go through the research and piece together. I was thinking, is there some grand conspiracy? But I think the ultimate answer is one of the prosecutors, lower ranking prosecutors in the office who was trying to get it charged properly later said, I just think he didn't have the spine. I don't think he had the spine to take on this fight against these aggressive, sometimes underhanded tactics used by these mega famous, mega expensive lawyers. And he just, to, to say it simply, he just wimped out and he didn't have the guts to take on a scary, intimidating guy with a group of scary, intimidating lawyers. Now, it's not until many years later when Acosta becomes a member of Trump's cabinet that people start going, "What? what how did this happen with Epstein? And uh, a great local reporter down there named Julie Brown sort of busted everything open. And then only then did the Southern District of New York, the feds, my former office, come in and indict Jeffrey Epstein. But they it's not even clear that indictment would have stuck because they would have had problems with how old the conduct was. They would have had problems with the deal they made with him then. Now, because he dies, they don't end up having to litigate these. But um, Epstein very nearly got away with it entirely the first time through. And he only really, I'm convinced, I argue in the book, only ever got any attention the second time through because Acosta drew so much attention. If Acosta had never been named Trump's secretary, um, nobody would have ever taken another look at this. Epstein would be... Oh, Free today, I'm convinced. So when Acosta was accosted, he infamously said that it was above his pay grade and it was intelligence. You said you're not into conspiracies, but what does that imply? Above his pay grade, the decision to plead out Jeffrey Epstein. Yep. Epstein was into Epstein was intelligence. Is this a cursing podcast? Um, say whatever you want. I mean, that's bullshit. I mean, it's just decide. It's provably untrue. Acosta was the U.S. attorney. For that federal district in Florida, he had the final say. There's no evidence that he went anywhere else. They did. They did sort of 
the attorneys for Epstein made noises about going to DOJ, the main, you know, D, the headquarters of the Justice Department in D.C., which people do. But ultimately, it's Acosta's call. There's never been a shred of evidence it was anyone other than Acosta, nor did he ever register any protest of it. So, uh, no, I reject that. I, I, I don't buy his denial. Because some people have speculated that the numerous times Bill Clinton went on the Lolita Express meant that Epstein had some leverage over the Clintons. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a part of the story that nobody's ever really solved. But clearly, a lot of powerful people hung out with them. I mean, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, you know, there's p videos of, of Epstein partying with Trump. There's actually a quote I pulled from a profile done of Epstein years ago before he was ever in trouble with the law where Trump, of course, many years before Trump was president, I think it was the early 2000s. I have the quote in my book, but Trump says something like, oh, he's a real party guy. He likes the girls even younger than I do or something like that. It's, it's like looking back at it, it's astonishing. Bill Clinton was asked for a quote in the same piece and he gives a much more uh, measured quote. He says something like, oh, he's a philanthropist. You know, he's like very political in the way. But yeah, I mean, this guy was around all sorts of political people who've come up with like, you know, you know who Malcolm Gladwell is, right? The, the author, right? Um, no, expand, please. What's that? Um, explain to people who that is. Malcolm Gladwell is a very, very successful author and pseudo intellectual who comes up. With, I, I think he's a, I think he's kind of a, I think he peddles some very, I think he's a BS artist. Look, I think he peddles these like glib theories that he supports with two anecdotes, but don't really stand up. He was uh, on that plane. He was on the plane with Epstein. And when he's been asked about it publicly, he has this ridiculous story about oh, uh, I don't really, I didn't even know what happened. We were just sort of hanging out at some event. Next thing I know, I'm on the plane. I didn't know what it was. Like, I mean, come on. So a lot of very influential people, Prince Andrew, uh, were around him. And I don't know that we've ever gotten to the bottom of the question about, about what he had on people, why he got away with so much for so long, why so many, why he was, how he got so rich, um, why very influential people were hanging around. There's a lot still unresolved about that that I don't know that we'll ever, ever resolve. Well, if you look at the amount of money that Black gave him for financial advice. <laughs> Who? Was it was it Leon Black or Conrad Black? Oh, I don't know. What? Yeah, I don't know. Leon Black, Epstein. Because people were asking, where did all this money come from? Yeah, I, I don't... We've never really gotten a satisfactory answer to that as far as I can well, tell. Well, well, Leon Black gave him $158 million for that's tax... A lot for, that's tax, a lot for consulting? For tax and estate advice? Yeah, I'm curious about that. Which seems extremely suspicious. Leon Black was worth $9 billion at the time. And um, it has mired him into the Epstein scandal by doing that. Wow. And then we've got um, Wexner giving him the property and also boosting Epstein's wealth. So it's, it's, it's clear that there were some billionaires who passed this money down to him for whatever nefarious reasons yeah. but the what they're, they're officially saying just doesn't add up yeah i can't i, I i'm not going to solve that <laughs> why do you think prince andrew got a pass i i don't know i mean it would have been really difficult for the u.s to charge well look all these people nobody ever got charged with anything i mean there, there are questions of proof beyond a reasonable doubt did prosecutors have enough to charge a crime against any of these folks right i mean a lot of people were accused by these now women then girls of improper 
sexual conduct, um, including Dershowitz, um, although I, I believe that woman later recanted. Um, so, you know, I, I don't mean to make excuses for prosecutors. We just don't know what they had. And you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I do feel like Andrew was given a very soft touch throughout by the authorities on both sides of the ocean with respect to the civil cases, with respect to subpoenas. Um, I think he barely sort of slunk through this one. I think he, I think in part he got a pass because of who he is. I don't, I don't think there's any question about that. Well, his reputation has been destroyed in this country, but when they were trying to question him before he paid her off, um, did America have any legal recourse to extradite yeah. the Queen's son? Would that, is that just something yeah, that could I mean, possibly the, happen? The technical answer is yes. We have a treaty, a mutual assistance treaty, we call it, with England, with the UK, um, which means if we indict someone here, they will generally agree to arrest the person and pending their own procedures, send them over here. I mean, we extradite people from UK uh, all the time. I, did, I believe Assange, Julian Assange, I don't remember where he was, somewhere in Europe. Um, Assange is right by near me right now in Wandsworth Prison. Okay, so, but you know, he was extradited. So you have people, yes, the, the short answer is technically you, you can extradite, indict and extradite somebody in the UK. But as you say, there's a big diplomatic international problem with doing that uh, with somebody who's part of the royal family. I, I'm sure that was part of the hesitation. Yeah, because the justice system is HM and the prison system is HM, which means Her Majesty is the owner of it all. So. If she owns the justice system and the legal system um, and they're trying to extradite her son through the British legal system, which she owns, it seems that she would have some kind of right to not allow that. Well, there was there was a battle over a subpoena, I remember. I don't remember how it came out, but I remember Andrew and maybe the British authorities were resisting him complying with a subpoena in a civil case, which ordinarily, again, should be enforceable. But I don't remember the details of that. So... In your research of Epstein, then, did you research Maxwell? Yeah, sure. I mean, Jelaine Maxwell, I guess the big question with her was, well, first of all, it took them quite a while to indict Maxwell. It took, her, took them a year or more. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's curious to me that the only people ever charged in this case were Epstein and Maxwell. Um, they were clearly the one and the two or the, you know, one and the one A, but you can't run a multi-state, multinational ring of child abuse with just two people. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the big question was, would Maxwell ever flip? And if she did, would she give them credible evidence? Now, she did not flip and she's doing some massive, you know, she got convicted. She's doing decades. I forget the number. Uh, you know, she'll probably never get out from prison. But there was speculation. I think I probably wrote a piece or two about would she flip? Would I co Would I take her as a cooperator? I said I would if she gave me substantial targets in a way that was reliable and corroborated. But as it stands, she did not cooperate. She went to trial. She got convicted, and she's doing. I, I think it's. I, I have the number thirty something in my head, but it's many, many years behind bars. But couldn't she be Bill Cosby now once the publicity has died down? Because my theory well, was, yeah, give her give her a big whack her with a big sentence to satisfy the out rage but then quid pro quo or out a bit of back sheesh to some appeals court judge maybe but but cosby the reason i'm gonna say this is sort of controversial i think i say this in the book bill cosby his conviction was reversed by the pennsylvania state supreme court 
And they were right, legally. Bill Cosby is absolutely guilty, but what prosecutors did to Cosby was actually patently inappropriate, incorrect, unfair. Now, uh, and I'll explain, let me explain that. First of all, part one, they gave, like much like Epstein, the original prosecutors look at this case gave Cosby a pass. It's unbelievable. When they were first investigating this case, they got a complainant in, this woman who worked at Temple, and they interview her, who's claiming, she's claiming she was sexually assaulted. She's claiming she was raped, basically. Not full intercourse, but she's claiming she was sexually assaulted. And they interview her on the phone. Okay, any cop knows you don't interview the victim of, someone who's claiming sexual abuse on the phone. It's hard enough to build rapport, never mind on the phone. Then when it comes time to interview Cosby, these detectives travel from Pennsylvania into New York City, meet with him in his lawyer's office, and come out and they're gushing. The cop is gushing to the press, the detective. They're like, what happened? He go, he, the, the detective, I quote him in the book, he says something like, oh, Mr. Cosby came out, he was wearing his typical Cosby sweater, just like on TV, and I don't see any reason to doubt anything he said. I mean, they were so in the bag for him because, and you gotta understand, I mean, you, you know, we're probably a similar age, but if you grew up in the 80s in the United States, Bill Cosby was the most famous, most popular. I mean, it, I can't, you know, for anyone nowadays, it, it it would be like Tom Hanks, like that, like 100% approval rating. Everyone loved the guy. And for, and he, you know, now we think of Bill Cosby correctly as a serial rapist. Um, but anyway, new DA comes in and charges Cosby. The problem was, here's where the prosecutors screwed up. Two things. One, by giving him a pass the first time. Then the prosecutor, after they give him a pass on the criminal case, tells Cosby and puts it, sort of memorializes it, I'm not going to charge you. And the and the reason that the prosecutor said he did that was because there were civil suits against Cosby and he didn't want Cosby to be able to take the fifth in those depositions. So the, the thinking, I guess, from the prosecutor was, well, if I make public, I'm not charging him. He can't take the fifth. That'll force him to testify in these civil cases, okay? He does that. So the prosecutor says, we're not charging you. You don't have a Fifth Amendment right anymore. He testifies in these civil cases. He admits, I mean, it's unbelievable. If you look, I went through the transcripts. He, he's saying, yeah, I, I gave people roofies. I gave women drugs all throughout the 70s and the 80s. I did it for sex. Like, he just admits it all. Um, then, years later, a new prosecutor comes in and says, oh, I'm going to use all that testimony against you now. So they, like, lured him in based on a promise that he's entitled to rely on, got him to testify based on that promise, and then took it back. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. That's, that's not acceptable prosecutorial practice. So I, I blame prosecutors here they blew it they blew it in giving him a pass they blew it in this ridiculous back and forth where they kept changing their mind and said they weren't going to use something against him and then did use it against him they were asking for a reversal and they got a reversal so that's how cosby escaped his justice he's still he's out in the open i mean he's you know he's very old now but he's alive and free so you said they gave him a promise do you mean by that he had some kind of deal that was in paper written down yeah, in there, paper. It was, it, there was written on the record public assurances. The prosecutor said, we've decided, I, I forget what form it took, but yes, it, this wasn't like some behind the scenes deal that people varied on it. Like the prosecutor signed a piece of paper or said publicly something along the lines of, we've decided not to, ch not to charge Bill Cosby criminally. Therefore, he, he will have to testify in his civil depositions. And Cosby did. And again, when the prosecutor say, you know, you say it's a bait and switch, right? They said, 
oh, we're not going to charge you. Go ahead and testify. You're free to testify. You can't incriminate yourself because we're not going to charge you. He testifies and then they go, oh, now we're going to charge you. And worse yet, when they did decide to charge him, they could have proceeded without using his testimony. They could have said, yeah, judge, you know, we, we agree. We acknowledge he was lured to give that testimony by our promise. We've taken the promise back, but we're not going to use his testimony against him. They would have been fine. They had victims, but they got greedy and they used his testimony against him. Like that's a, that's a ridiculous judgment call by the prosecutors. Why didn't his lawyer have him plead the fifth in the civil cases? Because he had been assured on the record that he wasn't going to be charged. Therefore, the argument was... And I think you're technically right, but the, the thought was at that point when he testified, he'd been told he's not being charged. So he has no possibility of being inc of incriminating himself. He, he's not being charged. That said, a smart lawyer would have said, you're still taking the fifth, Bill, because those are state level prosecutors. You could still be charged federally. I'm not letting you go. Like I would have, I, I cannot explain why the lawyers let him testify. And again, that testimony is like, it's not even a whole bunch of, I don't recall, or that didn't happen. I mean, he's just like, it's astonishing. He's just recounting how he would have sex with these women. They would, you know, he would give them drugs. I mean, it's it's really, he, he gives, he admits everything. Not everything, but he admits a lot. So if these crimes occurred in the 70s and 80s. There's a statute of limitations problem too, yeah. Some of them were too old. Some of them couldn't be used. Uh, the judge in the eventual trial lets in some of the older evidence, but not all of it. Right. Okay. So Harvey Weinstein. Oh boy. Uh, one of the, my favorite targets in the book is the former Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. Cy Vance, I have a chapter in the book based on very good reporting. And I forget if it's the Atlantic or the New Yorker, but someone did a great piece about how years before Trump became president, the DA in Manhattan had Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump basically dead to rights on a fraud case. They were lying to people. I mean, tell me if this sounds familiar. Lying to investors about real estate, that kind of thing. And he ultimately, Trump sends in his lawyers, Donald Trump, the future president, former, you know, at that time, future president, sends in his lawyers. And Cy Vance basically like decides, no, we're not charging it. Contrary to what some of the people on his team want to do. Fast forward to Harvey Weinstein. Uh, there were various complaints circulating about Harvey Weinstein. The NYPD is working with this one victim, a woman who's pub gone public. Her name is Ambra Gutierrez. And she says, basically, Harvey Weinstein sexually, you know, has, has been sexually groping and assaulting me. They have her wear a wire. They ask her, will you wear a recording device? And she does. And she gets this incriminating tape of Harvey Weinstein. We've heard it. It's been on the news. He Clear as day, he's apologizing. He's, for, he's acknowledging that he groped her previously. He says something like, I'm just used to doing that. I mean, he's toast. And Cy Vance makes the decision not to charge him, um, you know, for reasons that Cy Vance has never satisfactorily explained. Cy Vance only doubles back after the Me Too movement really starts gaining momentum and people start going, wait, hey, hang on a second. How did Cy Vance not charge this? Then Cy Vance becomes the brave hero years later, goes, actually, I think I will charge him now and does charge him eventually and he gets convicted. I should add, by the way, I forgot to mention, with the first story with the Trump children, the lawyer who goes in, who saves the day, is a lawyer who had donated tens of thousands of dollars to Cy Vance's campaign for DA. And then Cy Vance like, returns the money, and then he gets caught, and the media says, what the hell are you doing? And then he, he returns the money, and then he takes it back, and then he returns it again. I mean, Cy Vance is just like, multiple times Cy Vance gives very powerful people passes, influential people, at times donors, gets called out by the media, and then tries to like, 
circle back and fix it after the fact only when he gets caught and called out so i i i'm very critical of cy vance in the book i think he's a uh, he was a weak and unprincipled spineless prosecutor so would you say that in america you get what justice you can afford yeah i think that's largely true i mean it's not true as a rule i do i do make a point in the book of saying you know there is a notion that people who get who get who can't afford lawyers who get public defenders like they're screwed I tell you in the book, from personal experience, public defenders in some, in many instances are excellent at what they do. Sometimes, often, I would see people originally get assigned a public defender, then scrape up all the money they could and go hire some tomato can private lawyer. You would have been better. They would have been better. Would have been better off with the public defender. Um, and again, the, the converse of that is not every mega expensive lawyer is a super effective lawyer. I mean, Alan Dershowitz probably costs an arm and a leg. I think he's atrocious. I mean, in the, in recent years, he has, a, you know, he has an interesting history, but if you look at his advocacy that he, that he gave on behalf of Donald Trump, it's ridiculous. Um, so, but yes, I mean, all things being equal, you want more money. Here's something I write about in the book though, that like People, I think everyone understands the idea of paying for fancy lawyers. What one tactic that I call out in the book that ended up being proven over and over again is what I would see in my mob cases is very powerful gangsters would often pay for other people's lawyers, for the people who get arrested with them, in order to keep them quiet. I saw it all the time. I have stories in the book about we would do an arrest of 22 people. You would know exactly who the 22 lawyers would be. It would be all the guys on the Genovese you know, list of approved lawyers, all the guys on the Gambino list of approved lawyers. Well, Donald Trump is really good at that. We see that now. There's people in the Mar-a-Lago case, he's paying for the lawyers of his co-defendants. He was paying for the lawyer for Cassidy Hutchinson for a long time, which made it really difficult for her. She said publicly, and I, I've spoken with her, it made it really difficult for her to come clean because she was like, well, the Trump people are paying for him. I can't tell them everything. I can't tell these investigators everything i know because he's gonna i'm gonna get in trouble and i'm gonna lose this lawyer i'm gonna have to pay for my own lawyer which costs six figures only when cassidy hutchinson found herself separate lawyers was she able did she feel confident enough to come fully clean and tell the full story and that was a huge moment in this whole investigation when cassidy hutchinson testified in front of congress i think that changed everything and she was only able to do that when she got free of trump's lawyer so i tell a story in the book about one guy in a mob case who was a semi-low player but we were always hoping to flip guys and we had one guy in the indictment who was represented by a mob lawyer but he sent his girlfriend on like a secret mission to find the fbi agent and say hey he wants to talk to you guys but he can't with that lawyer and so i tell the story of like all the cloak and dagger maneuvers we had to go through i had to get him a secret lawyer appointed by the judge and the secret lawyer met in secret with him and then came back to us and was like he does want to flip and we had to like pull him out of jail um immediately and like you know it, it, it took the point is it took an incredible amount of work and ingenuity to get this guy who wanted to flip to, to break him free of the grasp of the other lawyers who had been placed around him but isn't there a moral dilemma in mob cases if you're enthusiastic to get them to flip that that could potentially be a death sentence for them or their family members um yeah i mean yes in that it's not a moral dilemma it's a reality i think that we advise them of we have we have a program here WITSEC we call it I guess uh, on on the TV they call it the witness protection program but it's called WITSEC um, who's very good they will pull people out they will relocate people they will get people new identities I've dealt with many many uh, mob guys in WITSEC the funny thing is when you're in WITSEC so they'll send the mob guy out to the middle you know middle of nowhere and if you if you need to meet with them 
it, we would call it a neutral site because they don't come to me in New York. I don't go to them wherever they live. I'm not actually supposed to know where they live, although they'd always kind of tell me. Um, they would send you to a third location and it would always be some small town in, I won't even say the States, but you know, small towns, nondescript locations. So you end up spending like days in like a residence in with someone like John A. Light, with a guy who's a confessed murderer, former gangster. And you end up bonding with these guys. I did because, you know, it's, you're human. Uh, you know, how did you see the Yankees game? How are your kids? Whatever. And the rule was we weren't ever supposed to really leave. You'd have U.S. Marshals and FBI agents with you. The rule was like you weren't ever supposed to leave the hotel room. They would bring in food and stuff. And, but, you know, by day two, we were like, we're going to dinner. And you just end up like at a Applebee's. I don't know if you know what this is, but, you know, like at Applebee's or a TGI Fridays or something in, you know, pick your town in Nebraska or something with some gangster and he's trying to order the mozzarella sticks and it's like, God, what kind of life am I living here? Um, so anyway, that's a long-winded answer. I don't even remember your, oh, the, the flipping thing. Um, I mean, th they're very good at protecting these folks. It's actually very, very rare now that someone who's flipped and in the government's hands gets, gets murdered. It's been many years since that's happened. Witsec likes to brag that they have a 0%, a 100% safety rate. We had the head of WITSEC came to our office once and he said, you know, we have a 100% safety rate. No one in WITSEC has ever been murdered. And I went to him after I didn't want to show him up in front of the group. But I said, you know, you also have a 0% retention rate because these guys, the restrictions are so tight that they drop out of WITSEC after a few years. They, they, it's, they're not allowed to call anyone from home. Like they all just end up getting kicked out or quitting. Um, I think A-Light got kicked out if I remember right. Um, or quit or something like that. But um, yeah, they're very they're very good at that. I mean, the the number of mob murders in the United States is like almost zero now. The the most recent agreed upon mob murder that I know of happened in two thousand eight. I prosecuted it. Um, it's been over a decade since there's been an acknowledged the mob killed this guy for mob related reasons. They used to they used to kill each other and and other people all the time throughout the eighties nineties. There was wars between the families, but that is really cooled off. So you're saying that none of your witnesses got whacked? Correct. Thankfully, I was always very afraid of that. I had a, uh, I have a podcast uh, up against the mob where I did a long, inter an hour long interview with one of my former cooperators, a guy named Michael Visconti, youngish guy, 50, 52, 54, something like that. And a year or so ago, I got a call or a text or something that he had died. And I went, oh, no, I was worried because he's out in the world. I was like, oh, God, please tell me they didn't kill him. Because when the podcast came out, I mean, a lot of people heard it. And Michael called me and said, man, I, I warned him. I said, Michael, only do this if you're comfortable because I know you're living openly. And uh, a lot of people are going to hear it. And he goes, man, I didn't realize how many people are going to hear it. He goes, I'm all right. He wasn't killed, though. He died of natural causes. But um, yeah, thank thankfully, that's sort of a that used to keep me up at nights worrying about that, but it never happened. So talking about people that bring a lot of attention to themselves in the witness protection scheme, that brought to mind Sammy the Bull. Did you have any dealings with him? Barely. So Sa Sammy was a, a legendary cooperator who then got himself in more trouble after you know after he cooperate cooperates against John Gotti gets you know gets John Gotti convicted of murder. John Gotti dies in jail. Gotti Sr. Gervana then like gets a five-year sentence for doing 19 murders, gets out on the deal of a lifetime, and starts dealing ecstasy in like Arizona and gets thrown back in. I talked to Sammy on the phone once or twice. I never met him in person, but I was doing some trial where there was some question about like, could might we want to call Sammy Gravano as a witness? It was must have been a Gambino case. And I remember 
in being in the trial room and getting put through to him on the phone through whatever FBI connections. And I talked to him for eight minutes and I was like, no way. This guy's nuts. I'm not putting this guy on the stand. <laughs> now, you talked about how the mob hits had slowed down. But isn't that because other criminal enterprises have replaced them, such as the Mexican cartels? Yeah. I mean, their business model, they're like any other operation. They're, they're a business model. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was prosecuting them, one of their biggest money makers was sports gambling. They made millions off that. Now it's all legal. Now anyone can go on their phone in the United States and bet on tonight's game. So they've like lost a huge amount of that business. They've been pushed out of certain industries, but not altogether. They're still prevalent in some of the construction industry, the union rackets, strip clubs um, were a big, always a big thing for them. I did a case involving an extortion of a strip club. Um, but, you know, it's I think they realize at some point it's just bad business to kill people because that's what brings us. That's what brings the FBI. That's what brings heat. That's what gives life to murder charges. That's what causes people to flip. Gangsters usually aren't going to flip on an extortion charge. They'll do their three years, their five years. But when you start charging people with murder, that's how that's the, the way I mostly was able to flip people. And yes, there's always different groups. I mean, I'll give you one example. The Albanians, um, Albanian gangsters started really clashing with the Italian mob in New York City. Um, the Albanians are a generation or two behind, you know, in terms of when they came to the country. But I did a case where the Genovese family was doing home invasions. They were robbing homes of people who they knew kept cash or drugs or jewelry or whatever. But they didn't want to do it themselves because it was too risky. So they would basically subcontract these robberies to Albanians. And so I flipped one of, we flipped one of these Albanians. I guess I won't say his name because uh, he's out there in the world. I think I don't know where he is now, but he flipped and he was like, yeah, they they come to us to do the dirty work because we're much tougher. We're crazy. We're willing to do stuff they're not willing to do anymore. But sometimes that would end up in turf battles, too. And of course, they would rob from each other. And yeah, but you're right. You know, the the uh, the, the hold over the criminal enterprise is never forever. There's always newer, evolving, hungrier groups out there, just like any other industry, right? So with the Mexican cartels, then, there's so, it seems there's so much money at stake. There's an economic incentive whereby the most violent will maximize their profits and dominate the market. Do you think you that's, know, a, that's caused you know, chaos over there you know, in Mexico? I'm not an, I'm not an expert in the cartels at all. They never came into play in my I, – I did narcotics cases early on, but not cartel level cases but i will say this one of the mob's rules and i'm using scare quotes here is that we don't we don't deal in drugs this goes back to the beginning of the mob because a they felt like they were sort of gentlemen gangsters who didn't dabble in that kind of thing um and b they realized that the penalties were really severe for, for drug trafficking smartly the the problem is virtually everyone does it and i did so many cases where we you know some of them were just outright heroin traffickers others were sort of in partnerships with marijuana dealers, smaller level things. But I would charge guys, we had a case where we charged guys with a bunch of Gambinos with, I don't know, 15, 12, 15 different crimes, including like they were sort of working with local marijuana dealers, small time drug trafficking. We wouldn't have charged it unless it was tied to other crimes, which this was. And they, the guys, when it came time to the plea, they were all willing to plead to the bigger stuff, but not the little tiny marijuana trafficking because they didn't want to admit they were breaking the rules. So the mob has, I think, by necessity, there's too much money in, in, in drug trafficking. They've they've long done it, and, and I'm sure they're still doing it today. I'm sure not anywhere near the scope of the cartels. Wasn't that one of the things that John Gotti motivated him because his um, associates were involved in drugs and they thought there could be a problem from up top? 
you know, as as I remember it, John Gotti Sr., the father, who was more much, you know, much more powerful and feared, was actually, I believe, uh, was actually like enforced that. Like he kind of knew some of his people were dealing, but he was pretty against it. John Gotti Jr., part of our case was that he was very much in the drug trade and knew what was happening. It was, you know, taking money from these guys and all that. So, um, but, you know, you go back in time, there, there were one of my cooperators said that the mafia was founded on heroin trafficking you know i don't know about founded but made its original bones on on heroin trafficking in the united states yeah lucky luciano and all that so what about pedophile priests anything like that that's i that's not in the book i mean uh, you know I, I don't really have any particular expertise into that any other celeb names in the book Sure. I mean, uh, Cosby, Epstein, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think who else. Epstein, Cosby, Weinstein, Trump, a lot about Trump in there. Um, there's a good bit of history in there. I think it's interesting if you dig back through American history and look at what happened with Richard Nixon, what happened with Bill Clinton, what happened with Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's VP for a while. And I sort of dug into the history a bit there. And, you know, all of them were potentially in the crosshairs of an indictment. Nixon obviously got pardoned. Agnew worked out a deal with prosecutors where he would resign and he would plead no contest to charges. Bill Clinton actually, you know, he was famously impeached and then found not guilty, but the but the prosecutors still had to decide, are we going to charge this guy criminally when he gets out of office? And they too worked out a deal with him where he gave up his law license and paid a fine and wrote a statement acknowledging he had lied under oath. But I basically dig into the history of this and the DOJ policy of what do we do when we have a sitting president or vice president who might have engaged in criminality is something we're still wrestling with. We were wrestling with during Donald Trump's time in office. We may be wrestling with again if he wins and goes back into office. Uh, so there, there's a lot of interesting history. This is not, it's not a new problem, but it's definitely new in terms of its scope. We've never had a president looking at the level of seriousness of charges that Donald Trump is looking at right now. Not even close. Did you look at the arrest of Bill Clinton's half-brother Roger for drugs? Well, <laughs> Uh, Bill, I mean, I talk about pardons in the book and, and I, what you're probably alluding to is Bill Clinton on his last day in office famously pardoned his half-brother, um, Roger Clinton, who had been convicted on cocaine charges, and a guy named Mark Rich, who was a billionaire financier who was a fugitive on tax charges. And that pardon was so egregious that the Southern District of New York, again, my former office, opened up a criminal investigation because they were trying to figure out, was this was this pardon the result of a bribe or something? I mean, no charges came of it. But, you know, people, people remember the Trump pardons because they were recent and he pardoned all his cronies and all these, you know, Steve Bannons and Paul Manafort's. But he did not, Donald Trump did not invent the shady pardon. I mean, there's the Clinton pardon of his brother. Um, was um i guess it would have been i believe it was george bush the father pardoned a bunch of people who were either had been indicted or were the subjects of investigation in the iran contra case and that case, one of the cases was about to go to trial when bush issued the pardon sparing perhaps himself perhaps reagan from being exposed so presidents have uh, there's a long interesting history of shady pardons somebody else pardoned oh I was going to say the other family member is Donald Trump pardoned Charles Kushner, who was Jared Kushner's, right? So Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, is married to Jared Kushner, whose father, Charles Kushner, was convicted here in New Jersey, where I live. Do you know what Do you know what Charles Kushner did to get himself convicted? It's wild. No. Charles Kushner is a, was a, a 
maybe a billionaire, but a very, very wealthy real estate developer here. That's why Jared grew up rich. Um, Charles Kushner was being investigated and he learned that, I think I'm going to get this right, his sister's husband was cooperating against him. So Charles Kushner hires a prostitute who seduces the sister's husband, has sex with him in a hotel or motel, videotapes it, and then sends it to them to blackmail them out of testifying. Uh, so that was a, a wild case, but he ended up pleading guilty. To, I think he pled guilty to a bunch of tax offenses, maybe obstruction, but that's what he did. And Trump par pardoned him. I mean, he was already finished his jail sentence, but or his prison sentence, but Trump pardoned him on the way out as well. So yeah, we, we have, is there a pardon power in the UK? Does that exist? Is there some equivalent of that? I've never heard of it. You can like the prime minister or can the queen pardon? I don't know. That's probably a stupid question. I've never heard of it. No, hmm. not, not over here. I mean, the pardon is not inherently evil. You know, people people recoil a lot of times because of the history I talked to you about. But I mean, there have been a lot of unjust convictions pardoned, a lot of people who are overcharged, oversentenced, people who are wrongly convicted. So it's not inherently evil. In fact, Donald, interestingly, Donald Trump used, I, I went back and found the, the stats on this. Donald Trump used the pardon way less fewer times than any of his predecessors going back, I think, to the Bushes, to the maybe the first Bush, um, but way less than Barack Obama, way less than Bill Clinton, way less than George W. Bush, I believe. Um, but he also, Trump also used a vastly disproportionate number to save his cronies, to bail out his friends, potentially people who could have testified against him, Manafort, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, on down the line. So, Trump really took it to a new self-serving level, self-protective level. So did Roger Stone, did he end up doing any prison time? No. Trump, he was sentenced to some, some I, I have seven years in my head, but he was sentenced to several years in federal prison. And right before he had to surrender, Trump commuted his sentence, meaning not a full pardon, but just said, you don't have to serve your sentence. And then on the way out, Trump fully pardoned Roger Stone. So no, he's never, he's never spent a day behind bars. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I thank you for your time. And do you want to tell yeah. the viewers where they can find your book and support you online? Uh, I'm the only Ellie Honig. You know, you don't have to worry about like, uh, you know, John Smith 4 or anything. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. My books are on Amazon, both books. If you just search under Ellie Honig, I'm on CNN most every day. Uh, so you can see me there. And um, I have a podcast. I have two podcasts, Up Against the Mob and Third Degree. Third Degree is every week on Fridays. It's 10 minutes or less. And Up Against the Mob, if you're into this stuff, is I guarantee you'll you'll enjoy that. Oh, well, cheers again, Ellie. You take care. And Thank thanks you. for your time. Thanks. Good talking to you. You too. Bye-bye.